When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, everybody. I'm Jared Halverson, and to all you who are watching on YouTube or Facebook, all you who are listening on the Unshaken Saints podcast, welcome. Today we're covering section 18 and 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, two of my favorite sections, which means we might be here for a while. There is so much packed into these two revelations. So I'm just going to dive straight in. Yeah, I want to introduce these revelations with this idea that I've learned from my kids the hard way. I have five amazing children, and one of the things that's amazing about them is how different they each are from one another. I mean, whenever I hear that, that controversy or the debate between nature and nurture, I always think anybody who thinks it's all nurture either has no children or only one. There's no basis for comparison. Because with all my kids, even though we've tried to nurture them all the same, they just came different wired towards this or towards that, not only in terms of interests and talents, but also in terms of the best approach to parenting them. It's one of the hardest things about parenting in general. What works for one doesn't necessarily work for another. It reminds me of the old analogy of the carrot and the stick. You're you on a picture horse this, or a you're mule, on a, an animal something you're trying to want to move forward, forward and it just won't go. Horse or donkey and so or you picture mule, some kind of and you're trying fishing to get it to move and it's just won't. dangling a carrot out So you have two basic options. And hopefully they're hungry picture enough, they'll start a, almost a fishing pole of to get after that carrot. That's dangling a and carrot if out the carrot doesn't work, now that's the positive reward. It's right there in front of their face. You can use to hungry, hopefully it motivates them to move. It's all a matter of what works best, a positive reward or a negative punishment. Would you rather be pulled or pushed? And everyone's different on that. I say all this to put in perspective that in section 18 and section 19, the Lord basically has the same goal in mind. It's to get us to move forward and to come unto Him. But He has very different approaches. And section 18 is more of the carrot, this positive reward that He's offering us. Whereas section 19 is a little bit more of the stick. We've got some mercy and some justice side by side here. But like I said, the end goal is ultimately the same. And perhaps the best place to introduce it is in section 18, verse 6. We'll go back and start at the beginning, but this is what it's leading up to. Verse 6, the Lord says, Behold, the world is ripening in iniquity, and it must needs be that the children of men are stirred up unto repentance, both the Gentiles and also the house of Israel. Remember, the Lord has a universal audience here, and both Jew and Gentile are all being invited to come unto Christ. But what are they up against? A world that is ripening in iniquity. Such an interesting visual image. On my mission, I learned just how ripe a banana can get. Seemed like in the Caribbean, everyone has a banana stalk in their backyard. But all these bananas coming at the same stalk at the same time makes you kind of have to space things out to get as much life out of it as possible. So you start eating bananas when they're so hard that it's like you're whittling off the peel. And you keep on going until they are so dark that it's almost baby food inside, and the only thing holding its shape is the peel. And as you start peeling, it starts mushing out. Honestly, I've eaten bananas at every stage of ripeness. On the end, the tail end, it's like, I did this as a baby. I did this as a baby. I did this as a baby. I could do this again. 
But I remember when I first taught this idea in seminary years ago, and this idea of a ripening world. I wanted my students to see what the Lord was describing there. So I had a strategically ripened banana. Something that was so black that the only good it could do from that point forward was banana bread. But I had it in this Ziploc bag. I mean, it was so mushy and black and like juice kind of seeping out from the edges. Nasty. And to go around and show the students that this is how the world is being portrayed. A world that is ripening in iniquity. It's getting worse and worse. And maybe even the banana bread analogy serves because it's only good to be baked, cleansed by fire at the second coming and turned into something far better than what it is right now. Maybe that's why it needs to be stirred up. Mix the batter. Well, stirred up, as we saw in a previous section, is something that the adversary does in stirring us up to anger or to wickedness. Well, what's the Lord stirring us up unto? Repentance. And that's the goal of these two revelations. Section 18 is going to take one approach, the carrot version. This is worth seeking and coming forward to. And section 19, in a way, is going to take more of the stick approach, that there are consequences if we don't repent. So whether you're better with rewards or punishments, the same message applies. We need to move forward and come unto Christ. And it's our ripening sin that is keeping us from it. Keep that in mind so that everything we see in these two sections points us in that direction. What does it have to do with the call to repent? How's the Lord motivating us? Well, start at the beginning of the section. Section 18 is addressed to Oliver Cowdery, and then about nine verses in, David Whitmer joins the audience. Then section 19 is for Martin Harris. So we've been watching these three witnesses over time. Section 17, they finally become the three witnesses. But we've been watching the Lord teach them and tutor them about gaining a testimony, Martin Harris, section 5. About understanding the language of Revelation, Oliver Cowdery, section 6, 8, 9. To be engaged in God's marvelous work and wonder, section 14, David Whitmer. All of them are receiving powerful messages that are meant for all of us. But none of them, and none of us, perform those missions flawlessly. Which is why we all need to understand repentance. Not only for us, but so that we can cry it effectively to a ripening world. Now at the beginning of this revelation, 18.1, the Lord says, Behold, because of the thing which you, my servant Oliver Cowdery, have desired to know of me, I give unto you these words. So like most of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, God wasn't the one initiating things. He typically holds off and waits for us to want to engage in conversation. In this case, Oliver had some questions. He desired to know of God certain things. And so the Lord responded with this revelation. Now the tricky part is, we don't know what he was asking for. But in some ways that makes understanding this revelation even more interesting. Joseph Smith once taught that the Lord gave parables to respond to a specific situation or question. Now all we're getting, for the most part, is the answer in the parable. But it's almost our chance to kind of reverse engineer things and work our way backwards to understand if this is the answer, what was the question? I guess we're playing Jeopardy. And to understand then from Oliver what was on his mind that would bring this kind of an answer from the Lord. Be thinking about that as we move forward. Verse 2, Behold, I have manifested unto you by my Spirit in many instances, but the things which you have written are true. Wherefore, you know that they are true. Is this starting to sound a little familiar? Remember Oliver back in section 6, he's received an answer to prayer to the point of motivating him to go find Joseph Smith down in Harmony, Pennsylvania. But it's like, was that really an answer from God? Is, is this really happening? 
And the Lord reminds him through section 6, if you want a further witness, then cast your mind back to your first witness. I speak peace to your mind concerning the matter. What greater witness can you have than from God? It's like, Oliver, you know. And I know that you know. There's a reminder of that here. You know that it's true, Oliver. You just need to know that you know. We could also tie this back into section 5 with Martin Harris. Do I really know that Joseph Smith has the plates? I just wish I had better evidence. I want proof of these things. I mean, the gospel is just beginning to roll forth. The church hasn't even been organized yet. All of these early, soon-to-be church members are taking a giant leap of faith, a step into the darkness. So maybe we should cut them all some slack. But I do wonder if there's something else the Lord is getting at in verse 2. Notice what he said earlier. I have manifested unto you by my Spirit. So this is going to be a spiritual witness. Remember last week when we talked about the difference between the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. And the, the kind of spiritual preparation, exertion that went into the, the powerful experience that the three witnesses had. And again, section 19 comes after that experience. So again, I'm scratching my head going, Oliver, are, you're still wondering if this is real? Go on. He says that you've had spiritual manifestations in many instances. It's not just a first and further witness. You've had a lot all the way along. And I have a feeling the same applies to you and me. Again, if we'll inventory shelf number one and see all the many instances when God has manifest His truth to us. But I think the phrase that makes the biggest difference is in the middle when he says that the things which you have written are true. I wonder if that's the sticking point for Oliver Cowdery. What are the, what are the things which you have written? He's talking specifically about the Book of Mormon, because it was Oliver Cowdery that acted as scribe for the lion's share of that labor. And I wonder if that is what is really, I don't know if troubling is the right word, but what's keeping Oliver from fully committing to this, I know that it's true. He's not doubting the existence of the plates. He's had irrefutable proof of that already. But what about the things that I have written? You see, I think the question mark for Oliver in verse 2 is on the word, you. Oliver, you were involved in this. And he's probably thinking, yeah, that's the problem, because I know myself too well. We keep talking about humanity and divinity, this important contrary to prove. And when it comes to translating scripture or building the kingdom or engaging in the work of God at all, we know there are divine fingerprints all over it. That's what gives us faith. But when we look closer and start to see human fingerprints on it, it's a little more difficult to fully commit to things. To know that it's true when I had a hand in it. In fact, that's probably especially the case when it's our own fingerprints we recognize. Can I really have a hand in God's work? And if I do, can it still be really true? I'm just so messy and so human. I make mistakes. I'm doing the best that I can, but I recognize my own inadequacies. This was Moroni back in Ether chapter 12, right? When he gets to the end of the Faith Hall of Fame and realizes the last place is meant for him. And he has this identity crisis. I'm not good enough to do this. The Gentiles will see my fingerprints all over the Book of Mormon and mock at it. What's the Lord's response? My grace is sufficient, Moroni. Trust in me. I can make weak things strong. Same for you, Oliver. It is literally your handwriting on the manuscript pages of the Book of Mormon translation. You recognize Joseph Smith's humanity as well. He's so much less educated than you are. You recognize the difficulty of translation because you tried and failed. 
honestly, I think some of the hardest times we have in recognizing the truth and goodness of the church, or the work of God on earth, is when we're the ones involved in it. Because we know ourselves too well. I remember an incredible lesson I learned from the very first bishop I served with. It was a married student ward. And so a lot of young couples that were really kind of cutting their teeth on church leadership opportunities. Newlywed elders quorum and Relief Society presidencies. Well, one time there was a ward council and the Relief Society president wasn't able to attend. And so she delegated the responsibility to one of her counselors, who was an amazing, fairly recent convert to the church, full of fire and zeal and testimony of the work of God, until she came to ward council. And there she was, as, as real honest and real and raw conversation took place about challenges the various members of the ward were facing, kind of organizational issues that needed to be smoothed out and worked through, just the basic grind <laughs> of running a ward. And what the bishop said was, after ward council was over and everybody left, this one sweet sister stayed behind, kind of distraught, and went to the bishop and said, our ward's a mess. Then he kind of laughed and said, yeah. And they all are, because they're made up of human beings with messy lives and challenges to overcome. So often we think, well, because it's God's work, it must be perfect, it must be flawless. No human fingerprints putting smudges on anything. But how do you think God expects us to grow? We get involved. So that better than just true, the church is real. And it's only in that way that it can really make a difference in our lives. So don't be a Naaman who was this close to completely missing out on his own life-changing healing, all because he was underwhelmed by the power of the cure. He expected the prophet Elisha to come out and lay his hand on the spot and cure him. It's just to call down the power of God. And instead to send out a servant and tell him just to wash in the Jordan River seven times? Where's the divinity in that? That seems so mortal to me. But once he humbled himself and went and actually did what God had asked of him, he realized the change it had wrought in him. Same thing for you, Oliver. Your human involvement does not lower the presence or power of God in this work. It's what brings it down. I don't think it was Oliver's doubt of God that was standing in his way in verse 2. It was Oliver's doubt of Oliver. And that's something that we all need to wrestle with and overcome. Now once we do, verse 3, If you know that they are true, and I just told you you do, Behold, I give unto you a commandment, that you rely upon the things which are written. Notice the Lord explains this commandment in the context of testimony. Sometimes we get that reversed. And we come straight out with commandments, and this is what you've got to do. And no wonder people rebel against that. I have no idea why I should. If I don't have a testimony of these commandments, then why should I take them seriously? I love that the Lord puts it in that order. Gain a testimony first, and then you'll want to obey. In this particular case, your testimony of the things that you have written, the Book of Mormon, when you have a testimony of that, then the commandment is to rely upon those things. Let your knowledge, testimony, drive your action, reliance, behavior. That was King Benjamin's approach. If you believe these things, see that ye do them. And that's going to be true here, not just on the individual level, like Oliver, you should follow the precepts of the Book of Mormon, but on an institutional level, 
How's the church supposed to be run the way the Book of Mormon explains that it should be? The Book of Mormon becomes the initial missionary guide, preach my gospel, the initial church handbook of instructions. I mean, think about it. Joseph and Oliver, how did they learn how to perform baptism? They found it in the Book of Mormon and then went and prayed and asked, is this how we're supposed to do things? You see in verse 4, in them, in the Book of Mormon, are all things written concerning the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. Wherefore, if you shall build up my church, which is what they were trying to do, within the year the church will be officially organized. But if you'll build my church upon the foundation of my gospel and my rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And where was that gospel found? What was the rock? We talk about the Book of Mormon as the keystone of our religion, which it is. But in many ways also, it's a foundation stone upon which the church would be built. The doctrine, the organization, the structure, so much of that grows out of the Book of Mormon. Remember back in section 11, where, all, where Hiram Smith is raring to go. And the Lord's like, whoa, easy, tiger. Wait a little longer until you have my rock, my church, my doctrine, my word. Let the Book of Mormon be finished. Let the, let the translation be completed. And then run forwards full speed ahead. Well, this is all happening. Joseph and Oliver have finished the translation of the Book of Mormon. It's time to send it to press. And because you know the book is true, bank on it. Build on it. Rely upon those things which are written. If you'll do that, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Now we're back to verse 6 about the world ripening in iniquity. Why did the Book of Mormon need to come forth? Why did the restored church need to be established upon its principles? Because of what we're up against. And one of the key messages of the Book of Mormon, taught so powerfully from cover to cover, is the need to repent. Honestly, to Oliver and to all of us, if we simply rely upon the things taught in the Book of Mormon, if we allow our belief in that book to turn into behavior based on its teachings, we will want to repent. Nothing will be able to keep us from it. This voice from the dust will cry to us to get up out of the dust and to become clean through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's one of the questions on Oliver's mind. As the Book of Mormon reaches completion, well, what are we supposed to do with it? What's it really for? It's to stir up the world to repentance. Now in verse 7, the Lord explains, Wherefore, as thou hast been baptized by the hands of my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., according to that which I have commanded him, he hath fulfilled the thing which I commanded him. So that's another example of mission accomplished. As you were translating the Book of Mormon and learned of baptism, you went out and I commanded him to baptize you and you to baptize him, and you all did that. You fulfilled those commandments. But now it's on to the next one. Verse 8, Now marvel not that I have called him unto mine own purpose, which purpose is known in me. Wherefore, if he shall be diligent in keeping my commandments, he shall be blessed unto eternal life. And his name is Joseph. And now, Oliver, I speak unto you. So you see what he's trying to get at here? I, I, I know Joseph. I know him by name. I know you, Oliver. I can call you by name. Up to this point, your paths have largely been in unison. You accomplished the work of translation together. You received the Aaronic Priesthood together. Performed those saving ordinances of baptism together. You were witnesses of the gold plates together. But now, those shared experiences are about to lead to divergent missions. And that's okay. 
Remember when we talked about this with section 15 and 16, these identical revelations, except for the one word. This one's for you, John. This one's for you, Peter. For both of you, the work of greatest worth, the, the umbrella responsibility, is to cry repentance which is what this section is about as well. But John will have certain responsibilities, ways to perform that mission, and Peter will have different ones. And now, again, Joseph Smith's going to have certain missions to perform, and Oliver, you will have different ones. Marvel not that that's the case. I think that's one of the hardest things, especially when we're young in the church, and we, we tend to compare ourselves to one another. In the mission field, it's like, well, was I supposed to become district leader, zone leader, AP? Or, well, what about that person? They, they trained a lot of people. Well, different missions, different responsibilities, different spiritual gifts. No wonder when we get to section 46, one of the gifts of the Spirit that's listed there is diversities of operations. Maybe it takes a spiritual gift to recognize that God operates in diverse ways through diverse children. Marvel not that someone else might have a different responsibility than you have. If he or she does what God has asked of them, they will be blessed unto eternal life. And so will you, if you'll simply perform the missions that God has intended for you. So getting back to Oliver in verse 9, don't worry about Joseph anymore, I'm now on you, and I'm going to bring in David Whitmer to this as well. Oliver Cowdery, I speak unto you, and also unto David Whitmer, by the way of commandment. For behold, I command all men everywhere to repent. That's the key focus of these revelations. And I speak unto you, even as unto Paul, mine apostle, for you are called even with that same calling with which he was called. Maybe this is another clue as to whatever Oliver was asking in seeking this revelation. I'm done with the Book of Mormon. What do I do now? I think every return missionary asks themselves that. I know I did. I, my life has been on this trajectory. I knew I wanted to get to this point, but now that my mission is behind me, what do I do? Or after serving in one calling, what do I do from here? Well, for Oliver and for David, the entire ripening world needs to repent. So extend that invitation to everyone. That's what I've always asked my servants to do. Paul is one example. You, Oliver, and David are two more examples of that. Now, he refers to Paul, mine apostle. And then says to David and to Oliver, because you have the same calling as he does. Now this is a little bit tricky, especially since later in this revelation he'll talk about the twelve. But the interesting thing is when he finally brings up the twelve, he calls them disciples. So what are we talking about here? Apostles, disciples, what is all this? Now the two words in many ways are related. In fact, it's from among his disciples that Jesus chooses his apostles. If, even if you think of the definitions of the words, a disciple is one who follows to learn. An apostle is one who is sent to teach. So you get the opposite ends of that. No wonder he sends apostles forth to teach from among the disciples who have come and followed him in order to learn. Now to this point, Oliver and David have been doing a whole lot of learning. But what are they being asked to do now? Go out, I'm sending you forth to teach, to cry repentance, which is exactly what I asked of Paul. Now in this way, the word apostle, notice it's lowercase here, is more of a generic term. I'm sending you forth to go preach the gospel. Cry repentance. Later, it will become almost a, a capital A registered trademark, referring to an office in the priesthood and an organizational term for a leadership body in the church, a quorum of the 12 apostles. Remember, it's not gonna be until 1835, that's still six years from now, that an official quorum of the 12 apostles will be organized. 
as a governing body with an official office in the priesthood that the members of that body hold. This is still line upon line, precept upon precept. And that understanding will come later. We'll talk more about that in a second. But up to this point, Paul went out and preached. Oliver, David, you need to go cry repentance just like he did. And here's the reason why. Here's the carrot dangling out in front of you. Verse 10, remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. We might think that statement is obvious, and yet the Lord calls them to remember it, which suggests that sadly, that truth is all too easy to forget. When we're just in the grind of it all and recognize our own humanity and the humanity of others, it's very easy to lose sight of the infinite worth of the soul across the table. But here's the irony about that statement. He focuses on the worth of souls, but then, somewhat vaguely, quantifies it as great. Well, what exactly does that mean? You see, I'm a Westerner. I'm an American. Uh, a capitalist, right? Yeah, I, I like to see price tags because I tend to forget that somebody actually had to decide what the number would be on that price tag. It, we just kind of assume that, oh, well, yes, that's the agreed-upon value of that item. But is it? How did we agree? You see, the process is much more obvious in many Eastern cultures or other cultures worldwide that believe in the barter system. You see, that was really hard for me when I did five months of study abroad in Israel as a college kid. We'd go somewhere and I wanted to buy something and then it was like, oh great, here comes the haggling. And I'd suggest the price that I thought was what it was worth, which was way lower than what the salesman, the, the shopkeeper, thought it was worth. And so I'd say this and he'd say this and then we'd start working our way somewhere in the middle. That actually is a fascinating process because how do you determine the worth of something? You create a relationship in which buyer and seller agree. They finally come together and can recognize a common value. I like the relational part. The hard part is not knowing exactly what it's going to be. But that emphasizes a key point. That value is not something that's fixed. It's something that's very flexible. And it all depends on what the person who's going to buy it or sell it decides together. I mean, we talk about beauty being in the eye of the beholder. In many ways, value is in the eye of the buyer. What am I willing to pay for it? Think about the housing market. If you were around when the bubble burst and a home that was worth this much on one day and was worth a whole lot less the next, what happened? It's the same house that was here yesterday. Well, market forces are at play. And if buyers decide, no, I'm not interested, it's not really worth that much then value can plummet. If on the other hand, so again, supply and demand, if everybody wants it, then what may have been very cheap yesterday becomes very expensive today. Do you agree with that changed value? Well, let me see if you pay for it. In which case, yeah, I guess you do. Please keep this principle in mind. Worth is established by what someone is willing to sacrifice for it. Either the owner sacrificing the object, or the buyer sacrificing whatever it is that they're giving to the owner in exchange for that thing. I remember trying to teach this principle in seminary years ago, and I pulled out a, a stick of gum and asked the class, okay, how much is this worth? And they looked at it and were like, I don't know, a quarter? I said, well, think about it. When you go to the store, how much does it cost to get one of those little packs? 
I think currently that if you just got a, a pack of gum, it, I think it's 35 cents when it's there in the, in the checkout aisle. And if there's five sticks in there, then do the math. What's this one worth? Seven cents. Okay, great. So have we established value here? If I bought it, I guess. I've established that I thought that that stick of gum was worth the seven cents I paid for it. But is that what it costs the company to make it? Definitely not. I mean, it's just like rubber and flavoring, right? And they probably crank that out for a fraction of a penny to be able to make a stick of gum. Then why not charge things at cost? Because it's not cost we're talking about. It's perceived value. They know it's worth a lot less than seven cents. But then flip it. Uh, any of you young men, would you be willing to pay a whole lot more for a stick of gum than seven cents? How about this scenario? Uh, you just ate garlic bread and a cute girl comes by and wants to talk to you. You see the problem? And all the guys saw the problem. Oh no, my breath is going to scare her away. Does anybody have a, please, a piece of gum? Please, please, I'll give you anything for it. So now all of a sudden, what's the value of that gum? A lot more than it used to be. Why? Because my perceived need is greater. I'm willing to pay more because of what I want from it. Now once they started understanding that, again, the flexible nature of value and worth, cost is determined by what I'm willing to sacrifice for it. I then asked them, would any of you be willing to pay, I don't know, 50 bucks for that piece of gum? And they were thinking, uh, I don't know if any girl's that cute. Then what about a thousand? Of course not. Would any of you pay $10,000 for a stick of gum? And they rolled their eyes like, are you insane? I said, well, somebody did. And in fact, it was a chewed up piece of gum. And they were just dumbfounded. Are you serious? The kind somebody leaves on the street for, me, for an unsuspecting pedestrian to walk on? The kind that I can probably find underneath my desk right now. That's disgusting. Who on earth would pay 10 grand for a, a chewed up piece of chewing gum? And I said to them, well, back in 2002, some enterprising person got Luis Gonzalez, who was a famous Major League Baseball player, to chew up some gum and spit it out for him. He put it in a little Ziploc and then auctioned it. It was kind of a fundraising stunt, I think for a high school team or something. But what was a fundraising stunt for the seller became a publicity stunt for the buyer. Because a man who owned a sports medicine company thought, oh, this could be advertising gold. And so he kept bidding higher and higher and higher until he finally purchased the chewed up wad of gum for $10,000. Crazy? Well, analysts estimated that by the amount of publicity that he got from that, everyone was so interested, who's gonna pay this much money for a piece of chewed up gum? That he probably generated enough advertising that it would have cost him between $500 and $750,000 to purchase that much publicity himself. Compared to that, $10,000 was a steal. What is the worth of something? It all depends on what you'll pay. But it is interesting to try to quantify value when that value is human, when it's us or someone that we love. What is the worth of a soul? Well, when verse 10 says simply great, that doesn't explain much until you get to verse 11. Because now the Lord is quantifying things much more clearly. For behold, 
The Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh. Wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. And he hath risen again from the dead, that he might bring all men unto him on conditions of repentance. Do you see the Lord putting his money where his mouth is there? How much is your soul worth? It's worth mine. I will suffer death in the flesh. I will rise again from the dead, all so that you might repent and come unto me. Notice that those two halves become a whole here. In verse 11, repent and come. Verse 12, bring all men on conditions of repentance. Please never separate those two in your head. If we think of repentance as something, I don't know, separate or distinct from coming unto Christ, we don't realize the relationship that the Lord is trying to renew. Why does He want us to repent? So that we can be with Him. It's our sin that's keeping us at arm's length or further. Our crying repentance is really inviting all to come unto Christ. But how do they come on conditions of repentance? How badly does Jesus want them to come home? Enough to pay the price of passage. I told you this was the carrot version of crying repentance. And when Jesus does it, how is he calling us unto him? Do you have any idea what you're worth to me? The fact I would trade places with you. I'll take your cross, Barabbas. I'll take your tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. I'll take the dirt that you pick up in your walk through life and wash it off onto the, the towel with which I am girded. I'll bear your scars. I'll suffer your pains and your infirmities. I'll do anything it takes because your soul is worth it to me. And what does he get out of the exchange? Look at verse 13. And how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth exclamation point. This is the first exclamation point we see in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's followed by two more in just another verse or so. And it's all in the context of repentance so that you can come back. That's how desperately I want you to return so that I can have joy with you. When we think of our sorrow and the thought of, of missing someone eternally, well, the Lord understands that far better than even we. And so what's riding on our repentance? The Savior's joy. Speaking of worth, it's what makes His sacrifice worthwhile to Him. But He doesn't stop there. Because typically, it's not just between Him and the person that needs repentance. What are Oliver and David being called to do? to cry repentance unto everyone. What were John Whitmer and Peter Whitmer Jr. told the work of greatest worth would be to declare repentance unto this generation. What were Oliver and Hiram told earlier? To say nothing but repentance. That's the message here. And so what's our role in all of this? Go to verse 14. Wherefore, a great conjunction, because of everything I've just said, because of the great worth of souls, Wherefore, you are called to cry repentance unto this people. Can we keep that calling in the context of what the Savior just said? By crying repentance to other people, I am bringing the Savior joy. I am making His sacrifice worth what He estimated it to be worth. 
the value of the soul that he is rescuing through it. And then he says in 15 and 16, And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring save it be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father! Exclamation point. And then 16, Now if your joy will be great with one soul that you have brought unto me into the kingdom of my Father, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me! Exclamation point. Three exclamation points and four mentions of joy in this brief passage. Back to seminary, I remember going through a kind of a word association game with my students. And I just throw up a word and they were just supposed to tell me the emotion that first popped into their head or their heart. It was Disneyland or pizza or a date. Just anything to, to strike an emotion and I wanted them to d identify the emotion immediately. Just kind of gut check. How do you feel the moment you think about this word? And I did some positive ones and some negative ones, but they all seem to be non-related to the gospel. Until I put one up that said, repentance. And it was so interesting to watch these teenagers as their stomach kind of, ooh, how do I feel about that word on a gut level? Up here in my mind, I might be grateful for the opportunity to change and, and repent of my sins. But on a visceral level, they felt negative about repentance. There's guilt and there's shame involved there. But look at it from the Lord's perspective. And as soon as you say the word repent to Him, what emotion comes? Joy. That's why I suffered. And nothing brings me more joy than to see someone on the opposite end of this relationship who agrees with me as to the worth of what we're exchanging. Your soul for mine. Maybe that's why it's so hard for us to repent. It's hard for us to come to agree with Jesus on what we're worth. There's no way I should trade places with you. It's like John the Baptist. You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. Honestly, any of us, I think, would say, No, Jesus, I'm the one that deserves the cross, not you. I deserve the suffering, not you. But to see his joy in the soul that repents, you are worth that to me. In fact, you are worth that to the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I so loved the world that I would give my own life. Do you have any idea what you are worth to us? And what you are worth to our servants? They could labor all their days in crying repentance. And if you're the only one who responds, theirs was a life well spent. You see what the Lord is doing with these two halves of the whole? What is a soul worth? I said it was great. Well, you want a quantity? It's worth my life and my death. And guess what? It's worth yours too. He died to make that a possibility. Can we live to make it one? Notice he says to cry repentance. Crying is something a baby does. It's something we do when we're hopeless or helpless, when we are in absolute reliance on someone else for aid. That's crying repentance. He talks about bringing one soul, or if you've brought many souls. This is the chapter on the carrot. We're bringing not pushing, not threatening, not dragging them, kicking and screaming. We are bringing them unto a God who loves them, who finds infinite joy in their return and therefore considers it worth it 
to purchase them at infinite price. You know, if you think about the, the three parables in Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy, also known as the prodigal son, joy runs throughout the entire chapter. The shepherd is bringing the sheep home on their shoulders rejoicing. The, the person who finds the lost coin probably spends more than the coin was worth to celebrate with the neighborhood. And what does the father of the prodigal son do? Kills the fatted calf, brings the robe and the ring, rejoices with him and with everyone. Because that one soul was worth it. If I can make a confession here, by the way, when I was a high school kid, I hated the parable of the lost sheep. Because it seemed, at least the way the Savior explains it, when he says the, he, the shepherd leaves the ninety and nine and goes after the one and brings it home and there's more rejoicing in heaven over the sinner that repents than over the ninety and nine just persons who have no need of repentance. And that's the part that bugged me. Because I was trying. I, was, I wanted to be one of those ninety and nine. I wanted to stay on the Savior's side. So I did my best unsuccessfully, but I tried my best to do what was right. And so when I thought of Jesus and the Father rejoicing more over the people that weren't even trying, but someday they figured it out and came back, more than me who's staying by the Savior's side, now can you start to see why he tells the story of the prodigal son? Yeah, I was the older brother. But even before we got there, I had this incredible experience at one point when I was throwing this prideful pity party. Why do you like them more than me if I'm the one that's been good the whole time? The Spirit whispered, or probably thundered, Oh, wait, you're one of the 90 and 9? Oh, wow, what an honor to be able to meet you. Remember the description there, a just person who has no need of repentance. And that, that you qualify? Wow. You must be among some pretty impressive company. Can you list the other 98? Well, that might take a little while. Just give me, I don't know, 5 or 10. 3 or 4? Okay, fine. Anyone else? In your select group of just persons who need no repentance? And that's when it dawned on me. I am the one. And we all are. Because we're all lost sheep. We're all lost coins. We're all prodigal sons. I'm not the older brother. I'm the prodigal. Because can you think of anyone that qualifies under the name just person who needs no repentance? Oh wait, there is one but only one. And he's the one telling the story. The only one that has the right to feel that sting of injustice that there would be more joy over you than over him was the storyteller, the Savior himself. For him to say, of course the Father has more joy over you than over me, because I was never a question mark. He knew I would come home. We weren't so sure about you, the whole agency thing we fought for. Now do you understand why he would teach the story of the prodigal son and the older brother? An older brother who never left the father's side? Ah, now I know who you're talking about. But compared to the kind of natural man older brother in the story, we have the spiritual man older brother in reality, who doesn't just turn a blind eye to the father running out to meet us. No, he comes and runs right alongside the father to help us come home. He doesn't just allow the father to kill a fatted calf. He provides himself as the lamb without blemish. It's not just the father's robe and ring. It's I'll take my robes of righteousness and put them upon you. 
little brothers and sisters who have abandoned us, but who have finally come home. Can you not sense his joy in that? And can you not want to be a part of that yourself? To go cry repentance. I fell in love with that as a missionary. Changing from judging sinners to helping them return, to give them hope, to see their worth, their infinite value. That's why Jesus came. And no matter how few or how many will actually listen, it's worth it. You remember Mormon's beautiful phrase in Moroni chapter 7? Have angels ceased to appear unto the children of men? John the Baptist just appeared to you. You've just received the keys of the ministering of angels yourselves. Why? To cry repentance. That's ironic ordinances. To, to get the sin out of people. So is God just going to close up shop with the ministering of angels? <laughs> no. Joseph and Oliver, we just got that thing going again. Next question from Mormon. Or has he withheld the power of the Holy Ghost from them? No. By now, the Melchizedek priesthood has been restored as well. Aaronic to eliminate sin, Melchizedek to introduce to the presence of God. Well, here's a member of the Godhead that can be your constant companion. Is God going to close up shop on that early? No. Third question for Mormon. Or will he, so long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof to be saved? Ah, what amazing rhetorical questions. Is God going to close up shop early. Never. As long as there is one person left, I don't care how late it is at night and how long ago we flipped from open to closed, if there's somebody hungry peering into the windows of the restaurant, we'll crank up the grill, open up the menu, anything you want I'll make. To see that in these COVID times of quarantine where temples are shut around the world, but wait, somebody needs to be sealed? Someone needs an endowment? Well, turn on the lights, gather the ordinance workers. Let's open the temple for an audience of one. How can this not motivate us to repent and to cry repentance? A human soul is worth the Savior's life and worth your life too. That applies to missionary work, knocking doors all day long to cry repentance to one. It applies to temple work laboring all your days to find one name or birth date. It applies to leading the smallest quorum or class of raising one child or caring for one dying parent. If Jesus is willing to trade places with them and call it worth it, then isn't it worth it for us to do the same? How great will be our joy together when we are in the kingdom of our Father. That's the ultimate goal. We said that we should never separate repentance from coming unto Christ. But what does Christ never separate? Coming unto Him and bringing us home to the Father. That's what this is all for. Now do you understand why Brigham Young would say that the least, the most inferior person now upon the earth is worth worlds? Now do you understand what C.S. Lewis meant when he said it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses? To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people.
only sons and daughters of God whose worth is great in his sight. So still wondering what you need to do next, Oliver? Wake up the world. Stir them up to repentance. They're worth it. And basically for the rest of this chapter, he tells us how to do it. In verse 17, he says, Behold, you have my gospel before you, my rock, my salvation. You helped write it, Oliver. The Book of Mormon is right in front of you. Use it to cry repentance to the world. Verse 18, Ask the Father in my name. In faith believing that you shall receive, and you shall have the Holy Ghost, which manifesteth all things which are expedient unto the children of men. You want to know how to persuade people to lay down the weapons of their rebellion? Then ask God. Have faith in the process. Believe you'll receive the inspiration that you need. You'll have the Holy Ghost. Again, why do you think I just restored the Melchizedek priesthood? I know crying repentance can be hard. Why do you think I called it labor? Why do you think I extended it through all your days? Then ask the Father for help and you'll get everything you need. In addition to that, verse 19, if you have not faith, hope, and charity, you can do nothing. You certainly can't cry repentance effectively without it. If you're crying repentance with guilt, shame, and condemnation instead of faith, hope, and charity, no wonder no one wants to come. In fact, connecting 19 back to 18 and the gift of the Holy Ghost, you understand how those three cardinal Christian virtues tie into the gift of the Holy Ghost? Faith invites the Spirit. Hope makes visible the Spirit's ultimate goals. And charity extends the Spirit's influence to all those that we are trying to reach. And through it all, don't forget what we learned from Mormon last year. At a time when he had no faith in or hope for his people, he never lost charity for them love them. If you see their worth, that will come naturally. Then in verse 20, an interesting piece of advice. As you're crying repentance, which in a way is helping people see the error of their ways, but be careful about this, verse 20, contend against no church, save it be the church of the devil. Now for this, we have to go back to what we talked about in section 10, this big picture, all-inclusive church, which is the church of the Lamb. Those who repent and come unto me is how he defined its members. Remember back to Nephi and to Jacob, there's only two churches out there. Some lead towards Zion, those are the ones he claims. Others lead away from Zion. Are you gravitating toward light or darkness? Well, split the middle and there you have the two churches. Church of the Lamb, Church of the Devil. And which one should we be contending against? The forces of darkness. Don't contend against any other church that is bringing people towards the light. They just happen to be doing it in different ways than you're doing it. This is still part of that unity in pursuit of orthodoxy we've talked about. You don't have to fight the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians. Joseph Smith had plenty of experience them fighting each other, right? War of words, tumult of opinions. That's not what the Lord is after. Contention is not of me. It's of the devil. So if he's going to fight, then I guess you can fight him back. But don't fight one another as you're all trying to move towards the light in one way or another. In fact, you're trying to fight against the church of the devil, even that portion that exists among some members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those that are gravitating to the darkness instead of the light, no matter what their church membership record says. And as we cry repentance to members of other churches, we're not trying to get them to repent of that church membership. 
We're trying to help them repent of whatever sins and iniquities are keeping them from fully coming unto Christ. Ultimately, that will include embracing authority and saving ordinances, the work of the temple, the whole thing. We'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to section 84. The, the way the Lord explains it there is breathtaking. But in the meantime, we're not trying to convince people to repent of their membership in other churches. Simply to repent of whatever it is that is keeping them from fully embracing the cause of Zion in their lives. Trust the process. The rest will take care of itself. The Holy Ghost can manifest to you how that process should unfold. Do it all with faith and hope and charity. Or none of it's going to work anyway. How do we go about doing it? 21. Take upon you the name of Christ. Speak the truth in soberness. You see, if we've really taken upon ourselves the name of Christ, if we're real Christians, then faith, hope, and charity should come naturally. Those virtues are no longer being short-circuited by the natural man. That should allow us to speak the truth in soberness, but at the same time to speak the truth in love, as Paul says. To take the truth seriously, that's what allows us to speak it in soberness. But to take the other person's worth seriously too, that's what allows us to speak it in love. Again, never lose sight of their worth as you're crying repentance. They're worth more than you being right. They're worth more than you getting that last word in edgewise. They're worth more than the church is since the church was restored to restore his people. That's in section 84 as well. Means and ends. Never get those two confused. And all of these means have that end in mind. Bringing a soul of infinite worth back to the kingdom of our Father. Now he said something in verse 21 that he's going to stick with for a while. He said to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. And then in 22 he says, As many as repent and are baptized in my name, which is Jesus Christ, and endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Repentance in many ways is simply getting rid of all the worldly names that have attached to us so that then we can replace them all with the name of Christ, being baptized in His name, and then endure to the end with that name affixed upon us. That's what salvation is. Because in verse 23, Behold, Jesus Christ is the name which is given of the Father, and there is none other name given whereby man can be saved. That's taught clearly in the book of Acts. It's taught clearly by King Benjamin. It's not our name. It's certainly not the world's names. It's the name of Jesus Christ. It's the only one that grants us entrance. You see, 24, he explains, Wherefore all men must take upon them the name which is given of the Father. That's Christ. For in that name shall they be called at the last day. You see what he just told you? He gave you a hint as to what Judgment Day is going to look like, as far as the roll call is concerned. In fact, that's important because verse 25 he says, Wherefore, if they know not the name by which they are called, they cannot have place in the kingdom of my Father. Now, do you understand what he just said there? I think too often we picture Judgment Day as far as roll call is concerned, and God pulling out kind of like Santa with the nice list, right? And we just hope that our name's on it. And the Father says, okay, if I call your name, you, you gain entrance to my kingdom. But instead of pulling out this massive scroll, he holds up a, a 3 by 5 card. And as soon as he does, we're like, oh no, really? I knew he was selective, but man, we're dead. 
And he says, okay, when I call your name, please come forward. And then he simply says, Jesus. Now, of course, that wouldn't surprise us. We knew that Jesus would enter. But as we sit there and hope that he's still going to keep reading more names, hopefully when it finally dawns on us that that's it, that's, that was the only name on the card, that it also dawns on us, wait a minute, he is calling me because that's my name. When I was baptized, I took upon myself the name of Christ. Every week when I partook of the sacrament, I showed God that I was willing to take upon myself His name yet again. Honestly, I think that's why the Lord uses marriage as the analogy in Scripture so often. And this is a place where you sisters have better experience with it than we brothers do. Because at marriage, you replaced a maiden name with a married name. And the Lord is asking each of us to do the same. I'm not going to enter heaven because I'm a Halverson. I'm going to enter heaven because I'm a disciple of Christ. It's the Father's kingdom which makes His Son the crown prince. And only by being married, sealed to Him, do I gain access to His kingdom. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, as Paul describes it. Now the world needs to know that name. and needs to know how to take it upon them. And that is going to require that we labor all our days in crying repentance. Now, it's too big for any one of us. So in verse 26, he says, Now behold, there are others who are called to declare my gospel, both unto Gentile and also unto Jew. Remember, last and first and first and last, and the day of the Gentiles is being fulfilled. This is for everybody, but it's all hands on deck. The harvest is great, the laborers are few. So pray that the Lord of the harvest brings more servants. Verse 27, yea, even twelve, lowercase t, and the twelve, capital T, shall be my disciples. Now again, this is the first hint that we get, that there will be a capital T, twelve apostles that form an organizational body of leadership, a quorum of the twelve. In fact, why this matters to David and Oliver, if you jump over the column, it says in verse 37, Behold, I give unto you Oliver Cowdery, and also unto David Whitmer, that you shall search out the twelve. That's going to be their responsibility. Go find them. Search out the twelve people that the Lord would call to fill that responsibility. Wait, huh? I'm supposed to choose apostles? How, how do I even recognize them? Maybe that's why it took six years before the Quorum of the Twelve was chosen. It took Oliver and David that long to identify the kinds of people that could occupy those positions. In fact, when 1835 finally came and the Twelve Apostles were finally chosen, Oliver Cowdery himself hearkened back to Section 18 and said to them, Our minds have been on a constant stretch to find who these Twelve were. Wow. Now, how are they supposed to identify them? Thankfully, the Lord gives them a clue. At the end of verse 37, when he says, You shall search out the twelve, he says, Who shall have the desires of which I have spoken? And by their desires and their works, you shall know them. Oh, okay. So how do you spot an apostle? By their desires. And how do you discern a person's desires? By their works. 
You show me what a person does, and I'll tell you what the person desires. Their deeds are an outgrowth of those desires. It's what's motivating them. So in searching out apostles, what I'm looking for are apostolic desires made manifest through apostolic works. And what's an apostolic desire and an apostolic work? Remember, it all starts with disciples. I come in order to follow. And from there, it turns into an apostle, one who is sent in order to teach. Go back to verse 27, when he first says, Yea, even twelve, and the twelve shall be my disciples. So that's the first step. They're true followers of Jesus Christ. And then notice the desire here. And they shall take upon them my name. That's what we just talked about in the previous few verses. It's the only name that matters. And these will take upon them my name. And the twelve are they who shall desire to take upon them my name with full purpose of heart. Now do you see how you'll spot them, Oliver and David? Verse 28, if they desire to take upon them my name with full purpose of heart, even if it comes, in fact, especially if it comes at the expense of their own names, then they are called to go into all the world to preach my gospel unto every creature. Remember, if you have desires to serve, you are called to the work. Well, this is a desire on steroids. Not to take upon yourself the title of apostle, but to take upon yourself the name of Christ. And to do it with such full purpose of heart that there's no room left in your heart to, that makes you want to hold on to whatever other names you possessed previously. Think about the names, and we could add the titles, that the members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve were willing to abandon to sacrifice because they saw a name of greater worth that they could take upon themselves in its place. Think about Dr. Russell M. Nelson. He was world-renowned. He had helped figure out how to perform heart surgeries and heart transplants. He was part of that path-breaking, trailblazing team. Or think about Justice Dallin H. Oaks. He was on the Utah State Supreme Court, and his name kept getting brought up as a potential candidate for the United States Supreme Court, and that was the early 80s. Can you imagine if he had been appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court? He'd still be there with like 40 years of experience. Man, his influence would have been so profound in the United States. In fact, there were even church members at the time, 1984, when both Dr. Nelson and Justice Oaks were called to the Quorum of the Twelve, when they lost their titles to become apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were church members that were like, what? No, 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 no. They can do so much good in the world with those worldly names and titles. President Gordon B. Hinckley, when he made the announcement, he's, he called it out. He was like, I know that some of you are thinking, why on earth would we do this? Well, rest assured, we didn't do this. The Lord did. He called them. He gave them this name, His name, because they, with full purpose of heart, desired it. You could see that by their works all throughout their lives, because even when it was Dr. Nelson or Justice Oaks, it was still Jesus Christ first and foremost. Professor Henry B. Eyring was no different. He, he was a tenured business professor at Stanford in Palo Alto, California. Sweet gig. But when he was asked by Neil A. Maxwell if he would consider being the president of Ricks College and 
Professor Irene said, what's Rick's College? And Elder Maxwell was like, uh, it, it's the church's junior college in Rexburg? And Professor Irene was like, Where's, where the heck is Rexburg? Uh, this isn't going very well. Uh, it's, it's a small town in rural southeast Idaho. You want me to give up Palo Alto for Rexburg? And Stanford? For a junior college I'd never heard of? Um, yeah. And what did Professor Irene do? He got rid of that name because he had already taken upon himself the name of Christ with full purpose of heart. Best of all, when Professor Irene talked to his uncle, Spencer W. Kimball, about that move and the kinds of things he was giving up to be able to make it, when President Kimball asked him, how do you think this is a sacrifice? When President Irene mustered his faith and said, no, President Kimball said, you're right. This is no sacrifice. One of my favorite examples of that willingness, that desire, came from Elder Richard G. Scott. Long before he was Elder Scott, he worked for the United States Navy, trying to create a nuclear navy for the U.S. military. I guess you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be an apostle. But in Elder Scott's case, he basically was one. Amazing. Physicist, engineer, incredible. And so valuable to the Navy that when he was called by David O. McKay to become a mission president in South America, the Admiral of the U.S. Navy, Hyman Rickover, who was famous for being like super scary, he absolutely refused to let him go. In fact, he accused Richard G. Scott of being a traitor. You're a traitor to your country if you leave this position. This is the middle of the Cold War. We have to be the first to create a nuclear navy. This, this national security depends on this. And you can't be replaced. There's no one that can do what you do. When Brother Scott at the time kind of showed, well, I, I'm, I'm planning on, on accepting this mission call, Admiral Rickover was so angry about this that he slammed his fist down on his, on his desk so hard he broke his paper tray. In fact, he, started, he said to, to Brother Scott, if you leave the Navy, you will never work in this field again. In fact, if this is what Mormons do, then I don't want any Mormons in the Navy. And that really concerned Brother Scott. It's not just affecting me. Could it affect everyone else? At one point, Rickover was even saying, you tell me who it was in Salt Lake that told you to do this. I want their number. Oh, was he going to call David O. McKay? Well, Richard Scott wasn't sure what to do, but a hymn started playing in his head. Do what is right, let the consequence follow. And so he did. He found someone that he could train as quickly as possible in hopes that he could replace him. He kept trying to smooth things over with Admiral Rickover, although he always refused. He wouldn't even talk to Richard G. Scott. He would just send messengers in between. But when it was finally time for Brother Scott to leave, he called the Admiral's secretary and said, I want to speak with Admiral Rickover. The secretary was like, he's not going to see you. He said, well, I'm coming anyway. And with a Book of Mormon tucked under his arm, and do what is right, let the consequence follow, playing in his head, he marched into the Admiral's office, sat down, presented the Book of Mormon, and basically said, Admiral, since I'm leaving, I figured I at least owed you an explanation as to why I'm doing so. And he started teaching the gospel to him. By the end of the conversation, Admiral Rickover said to Richard G. Scott, Scott, when you're done with this mission thing of yours, 
Come back and see me. You'll have a job waiting. In fact, I'll even read your book while you're gone. It's amazing how the Lord smoothed all of that over. But what's more amazing is that this was not a 70-year-old apostle taking a stand. This was a 37-year-old stake clerk. But one who was willing to take upon himself the name of Christ with full purpose of heart. Every apostle in this dispensation has a story to tell along those lines. That's how you spot them, by their desires and by their works. And I would simply suggest to each of us that if that is true of a capital A apostle who is ordained to be a special witness of the name of Christ in all the world, then should it be any less true of us, lowercase apostles? I use the term reverently, not as an office, not as an ordination, but as an invitation on the Lord's part for us to go forth and cry repentance, to take upon ourselves the name of Christ with full purpose of heart, and to invite other people to do likewise. Now back to the twelve that they would eventually identify. In verse 28 we saw already, they're called to go into the world to preach the gospel to every creature. In 29, they're ordained of me to baptize in my name according to that which is written. That way the people to whom they've cried repentance can then take upon themselves the name of Christ through baptism as well. And then in verse 30, do it the way I've explained. You have that which is written before you, wherefore you must perform it according to the words which are written. Now this is a tall order. Giving up your name to take upon yourself the name of Christ. Crying repentance to all the world. I'm so grateful then for what he says in verse 31. Now I speak unto you, the twelve. Behold, my grace is sufficient for you. You must walk uprightly before me and sin not. With a task as tall as what the Lord was asking for. I'm sure this phrase came with such assurance. My grace is sufficient for you. You can have my name and all the grace that comes with it to be able to perform this saving work. But notice the end of the verse also. You must walk uprightly before me and sin not. I think the grace not only looks back at what they're being asked to do as far as their mission, but also looks forward to what he's also asking them in terms of their obedience. It's so important to recognize that in this chapter, where he has spoken so much about repentance, he's also talking about obedience. We have to learn to walk uprightly. We have to be able to overcome sin, not just keep on committing it, knowing that, well, there's always another chance to repent. Now, that's what Paul called, again, Paul the Apostle, who's crying repentance, just like Oliver and David are supposed to. That's what Paul called presuming upon his grace. Eh, just put it on his tab. It's all good. I can always repent. No, we can count on His grace, but we should never presume upon it. Repentance is not our get-out-of-jail-free card so I don't have to obey. It's our get-out-of-jail card so that I can work again at learning obedience. Ultimately, I will have to learn to obey. Ultimately, I will have to root out the natural man within me, put him off, and become a saint through the atonement of Christ. That's what His grace is sufficient for. It's trying to change my future, not just redeem my past. In fact, the second phrase of verse 31 is impossible without the first phrase. 
if we ever hope to walk uprightly and not sin, then we have to rely fully upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Sadly, I think for many of us, we only think of His grace, His atonement, His sacrifice, working retroactively. It's meant to clear up the sins from our past. When here, we can see that it is also meant to prepare us against the potential sins of our future. You see, in medicine, let's go back to Dr. Nelson, there seem to be two basic types of medication. There is restorative or curative medicine. That's the kind you take after the fact. I'm trying to get better from a disease I have. But there's also preventative medicine. By taking it, I'm trying to inoculate myself against future disease. And the grace of Christ works in both directions. It's interesting that if you compare uh, Mary and Martha at the death of their brother Lazarus, which kind of medicine did they assume Jesus had? You see, when both Martha and then Mary run out to meet him, they both say the exact same thing. If thou hadst been here, our brother had not died. It's too late now. You can help the future, but you can't do anything about the past. It's too late, he's already gone. But if you'd been here, preventative medicine is what you have to offer. They didn't understand his curative, his restorative power. Sadly, I think we have it reversed. We're the opposite of Mary and Martha. We come to Jesus after the fact and say, I've sinned, I've fallen, I'm spiritually dead. Can you raise me back to life? And of course he can. But in our faith in Christ's restorative power, do we sometimes forget his preventative power? I've often felt that when I am pleading with God for forgiveness. And it dawns on me, if I would have begged God for his preventative power with as much humility and desire as I am now pleading for his restorative power, then I wouldn't have sinned to begin with. If I could seek his grace first, then I will be better able to walk uprightly and sin not. See, our problem is back to the, the emotional word association. We're scared of repentance and we're kind of intrigued by sin when we have to flip that. And to be scared of sin and so grateful for repentance. So grateful for grace. Now in verse 32, if David and Oliver are recognizing that they can't do it alone, they'll need 12 more. Well, 12 isn't going to be enough either. And so in 32, behold, you are they who are ordained of me to ordain priests and teachers. Again, we're fresh off the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood. To do what? To declare my gospel. How? According to the power of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, and according to the callings and gifts of God unto men. Declaring the gospel? Helping build faith and crying repentance? Yeah, that's part of our calling. It will require the gifts of God. It will require the power of the Holy Ghost. It will require the participation of Jesus Christ, His grace. But it's He that's behind it all offering that. See verse 33, I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it. I just talked about the importance of my name. Well, let me sign my name to what I just said. Bank on it. Believe it. This is the work of greatest worth. And whether it's you 12 or every teacher, priest, member of the church across the board that, is, that labors all their days in crying repentance, you have my name, my word, that I will be with you. 
Having signed his name to it, he then talks about the words that he's signed off on. I love 34, 5, and 6. It's amazing what he says about the words that are now coming forth. Remember, he already backed up the Book of Mormon. In section 17, he bears his testimony. As your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. He's, he's reminded Oliver of that at the beginning of section 18. You know it's true. Rely upon the words. Well, how about these words he's now giving them? Verse 34, These words are not of men nor of man, but of me. Wherefore, you shall testify that they are of me and not of man. If that was your struggle at the beginning, Oliver, thinking it had too many of your fingerprints on it, oh, they're my fingerprints all over it too. You were a scribe. Joseph was a translator. But I'm the one behind it all. So testify of that. Let the world know that this isn't stuff that you guys are making up. It's things that I am giving to you. Verse 35, It is my voice which speaketh them unto you. They are given by my Spirit unto you, and by my power you can read them one to another. And save it were by my power, you could not have them. Do you notice all those beautiful possessive pronouns? It's my voice, it's my spirit, it's my power. And if it isn't, I don't even know if I want to claim them as my words. That's when they do kind of sink back down into mere mortality. I sense that, sadly, sometimes when I'm studying Scripture without God's Spirit or God's power. It's my own voice in my head. It's not the Lord's. But there are times when scripture study is infused with His Spirit and His power. And it is His voice in my head, reading these words to me. That's what allows verse 36 to happen. You can testify that you have heard my voice and know my words. It's one thing to know the words of God. That can be mastered intellectually with enough study or memorization. But to say that you've heard God's voice, that is so much more personal than kind of cold or academic scripture study. It is relationships that he's after. Can you hear me behind these words? You can if my spirit and power are there. Verse 37 and 38 then, he reminds Oliver and David, this is how you'll spot those 12. We've already seen that, their desires and their works. And then he says in 39, and when you have found them, ye shall show these things unto them. Like I said, in 1835, when they're called, Oliver does hearken back to section 18. And once they've seen all this, verse 40 will come naturally. You shall fall down and worship the Father in my name. So grateful that you would consider us worthy to bear your name, that you'd give it to us with your callings and your gifts and your spirit. To fall down in humility and worship the Father for allowing mere mortals to engage in the work of God. Verse 41, what will we say? You must preach unto the world, saying you must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to stir you up to that. Because in 42, all men must repent and be baptized. Not only men, but women and children who have arrived at the years of accountability. See, this isn't going to be infant baptism. Yes, baptism and taking upon ourselves the name of Christ is essential, but accountability is inherent in all of that. Later, they'll learn more specifics about that, the age of eight. Here, it's more vague, the gears of accountability. But accountable for what? For your sins. That's why repentance is absolutely necessary, and why baptism to take upon yourself the name of Christ is essential as well. Verse 43, now after that you have received this, this call to Repent and be baptized. 
You must keep my commandments in all things. Again, never separate the two. Repentance and obedience have to go together. Repentance, eliminate the negative, ironic ordinances. Obedience, bring in the positive, introduce to the presence of God. Remember uh, King Benjamin's people, when they have this mighty change of heart, and they say, we have no more disposition to do evil, there's the repentance, but to do good continually, there's the obedience. I'm overcoming both sins of commission and sins of omission. Or even like we saw back in section 1, verse 32, Nevertheless, he that repents, there's the first part, and does the commandments, there's the second part, shall be forgiven. We have to do both. Repentance isn't meant to help us avoid obedience. It's to give us as many chances as we need to master obedience. The Lord then concludes this revelation by saying in verse 44, By your hands I will work a marvelous work among the children of men, unto the convincing of many of their sins, that they may come unto repentance, and that they may come unto the kingdom of my Father. What a beautiful summary of everything we've seen thus far. It's your hands, but it's my work, Oliver. Quit fixating on the human smudges. Look deeper into those gold plates and you'll see reflected in them the face of God. Convince people of their sins. Do it lovingly. Do it humbly. Help them see their worth so that they may come unto repentance. See, that combines the two right there. We repent so that we can come unto Christ. Well, come unto repentance. And ultimately, so that you can come unto the kingdom of my Father. That's the goal. Verse 45, Wherefore, the blessings which I give unto you are above all things. The blessings of being able to repent through my grace. The blessings of being able to cry repentance and labor all your days and bring souls unto me so that you can have joy with them and joy with me. Blessings above all other things. Verse 46, After you have received this, if you keep not my commandments, you cannot be saved in the kingdom of my Father. It's almost like, ouch, that's a little abrupt, a little harsh there. We, do we have to bring back up uh, obedience? I was feeling so good about repentance. But again, it's such a fine line the Lord is trying to walk. As He's proving contraries between justice and mercy, as he's taking that woman taken in adultery and saying to her on the one hand, I don't condemn you. That's how much your soul is worth. There's mercy. But go and sin no more. That's justice because of what your soul is worth. It's, the, it's your value in my sight that makes me want to strike this perfect balance between justice and mercy. To help you know that you can repent and to help you know that you must. We've got to figure this out, or your time in the kingdom of my Father will not be a pleasant one. It is a kingdom, after all, where the king's will is done. So back and forth, over and over, through this section. It's almost like he's putting up the bumpers in the, in the bowling lane. No, 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 a little more repentance. Oh, a little more obedience. Don't presume upon His grace. No, but you can always change. And just trying to help us get to the celestial center of the straight and narrow path. And then what does He say in 47? In some ways, He ends the revelation in the same way He, he said in the middle in verse 33. You remember 33 is where He signs His name to it. 
I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it. He says the exact same thing in 47. Again, signs his name to this revelation. But now he adds one additional phrase. If there was a way to keep an eye on each verse simultaneously, well, let's try it. I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, that's 33. Verse 47, I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, how does 33 end? Have spoken it. How does 47 end? Have spoken it. Amen. What's the one phrase that's added? Your Redeemer. And by the power of my Spirit. What else do I want you to know? Having taught you through this revelation about repentance, you need to know that I'm not just your Lord and your God who's requiring obedience. I'm your Redeemer who's making repentance possible. To redeem means to buy something back. Remember, we're making a relationship here. Bartering, what's the value? To me, you're worth everything. See yourself in that. Listen to the words of your Redeemer. And listen to them by the power of my Spirit, so that you'll know it's my voice calling to you, even through some other mortal mouth. When they cry repentance, I hope you hear me behind them, beckoning you home. Now, having studied section 18, the carrot, we're ready for section 19, the stick. And, and again, I hope you've sensed both the carrot and stick sides of section 18, as the Lord is trying to balance repentance and obedience. And there are carrot elements of section 19, even though it's a little more stick-like overall. Maybe the audience has something to do with that. Section 18 was intended for Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer. Those who, of the three witnesses, seem to be a little bit softer and, and more amenable to the kind of spiritual experiences the Lord wanted them to have. I'm not trying to take anything away from Martin Harris. He is amazing. But he was a little harder nut to crack. And in some ways, he had every reason to be. He, speaking of worth and what is someone willing to sacrifice for something, Oliver sacrificed an incredible amount of time and probable carpal tunnel as he, as he scribed the entire Book of Mormon, basically. But Martin Harris literally had to put his money where his mouth was. He had to decide, what is the price I am willing to pay to help bring forth the Word of God? The specific context of section 19 is really interesting. And, it, and it's a little tricky because we're not 100% sure about the dating of it. In older versions of the Doctrine and Covenants, and by old I mean pre-2013, the section headed suggested that it was received in March of 1830. And that was based on a recollection years later by Joseph Knight Sr. That, that he places it at this time period. But thanks to the excellent work of the Joseph Smith Papers Project team, as they've searched through so many materials within Scripture and everything that Joseph Smith ever produced, the newer editions of the Scriptures suggest that section 19 was received in the summer of 1829, which would put it more closely tied to what we just read in section 18. Now, does it really matter over the passage of the year? Well, perhaps, because what's happened during the meantime is the Book of Mormon's finished translation, now it's time to put it to press. But Joseph will work for free, thanks to the Whitmer's room and board. Oliver Cowdery will work for free, basically the same reason. But E.B. Grandin, the, the owner of the press there in Palmyra that's going to actually print and bind the Book of Mormon, he's not working for free. In fact, 
I want guarantees that I'll be paid for this. I $3,000 for 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon. But this is where it gets a little dicey. Because rumors are spreading like wildfire. And that does not bode well for Martin Harris. You see, he guaranteed that things would go okay by promising to mortgage his farm. He's basically using his farm as collateral for the Book of Mormon. I mean, once it's printed and it sells, then fine, we can just use that money and, and E.B. Grandin's fine and, and Martin Harris is fine. But what if it doesn't sell? Then I have to come up with a $3,000 somehow. And the only way to do that is going to be selling off 150 acres at $20 an acre. That's the $3,000. And what's been happening over the course of the year between the possible dates? The citizens of Palmyra have agreed to boycott the Book of Mormon. We're not going to buy the thing. They've even warned and kind of almost threatened E.B. Grandin. So he's a little jumpy about this. Am I going to get paid on this? And like I said, the more nervous Grandin gets, the more nervous Martin Harris gets. Now, if we go with Joseph Knight Sr.'s later dating, then here's the situation. You see, Martin is scared to death over this, and he wants a revelation from the Lord to reassure him that everything's going to be okay. Martin keeps saying to Joseph, I want a commandment. Now, again, it's interesting the language there. Remember, they called this the Book of Commandments. They didn't label them revelations at the start. They labeled them commandments. And that actually should tell us something about the revelations of God. If you know these things, see that you do them. If you have a testimony, then go rely upon these words. They saw this as, oh, not just something God wants me to know. It's something God wants me to do. And so Martin is pleading with Joseph, please give me a commandment. Help me know exactly what I need to do here. Please reassure me that the books are going to sell and all will be well. And according to Joseph Knight Sr.'s account, that's where section 19 comes. That after Martin had begged Joseph enough times, Joseph finally said, okay, I'll get you one. And here comes section 19 to let him know that what he needs to do. But if we trust all this research that's been done since then, and excuse Father Knight for the passage of time and a slightly faulty memory. If this revelation was given in the summer of 1829, when it's first time to give the manuscript to the printers and begin publication of the Book of Mormon, with a need for money as collateral to do it, if before all of the concern is there comes section 19, then that explains something else that Joseph Knight remembered. You see, when Martin kept asking Joseph for a revelation, a commandment, according to Joseph Knight Sr., Joseph Smith said to him, fulfill what you've got. In other words, you already got your commandment. You've received your revelation. Rely on it. Take that to the bank and quit worrying about what you took out of the bank to be able to back up the Book of Mormon. If that's the case, then section 19 is already in place in Martin's mind and Joseph is simply reminding him, I'm not going to get you another revelation. See, to me, that seems a little bit more true to two men that have been chewed out by the Lord for, keep, for, for asking too many times for something that God didn't want to give them. Remember the last 116 pages? I have a hard time imagining Martin Harris just begging, 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 give me something different, different, different. Instead, I can picture Joseph Smith saying, I'm not playing that game again, Martin. You've received the commandment. Live it. Fulfill what you've got. And... To Martin's eternal credit, he did. But what does it end up costing Martin Harris? Over half of his farm. He did sell off 151 acres at $20 an acre. To come up with the $3,000,
to be able to publish the Book of Mormon as commanded. In fact, to be as specific as Martin wanted God to be, this could have been a two-verse revelation. Because if the question is simply, how are we going to pay for the Book of Mormon? Fine. Go to section 19, verse 34 and 35. And this is all that Martin needed. Verse 34, impart a portion of thy property, yea, even part of thy lands, and all save the support of thy family. And why? To verse 35, pay the debt thou hast contracted with the printer. Release thyself from bondage. Now, that would have been a short revelation, but a really powerful one. Notice it was just in part a portion and part of thy lands. You're not going to give up the whole thing, Martin. You do have a family to support. I get that. And so hold on to what is sufficient to be able to support that family. But the, the rest, the portion, the part, give it to pay the debt that you've contracted with the printer. Release thyself from bondage. The eight years that we lived in Tennessee, it was Nashville is the headquarters of Dave Ramsey and his financial peace endeavors. As a good Southern Christian, he teaches finance, but he uses the Bible to do it. Well, I've often laughed saying, you know, if Dave Ramsey ever wanted to get some additional scripture to help with his teachings, section 19 verse 35 is one that he probably would agree with wholeheartedly, as it equates debt with bondage. Pay the debt equals release thyself from bondage. That's good doctrine, not just good finance. I've got a good friend that runs a budgeting company, and I'm sure he loves those verses as well. So like I said, that could have been it. You got the word, Martin, fulfill it. You were told to do it. And again, Martin does. The Book of Mormon survived because Martin Harris sacrificed. He recognized something of greater worth than property. He put his money where his mouth was. But I'm so grateful that this revelation has 41 verses instead of two. Because if you read all the rest with an eye to those two verses, the simple but difficult command, sacrifice. Well, now let's go back and see the entire revelation and how it gets Martin there. That counsel was given in the context of such bigger things. Submission to the will of the Father. What judgment really entails. What the atonement consisted of as far as the Savior's personal sacrifice. I mean, there is theology in section 19. So much of what we've seen already in the Doctrine and Covenants are powerful things for people to do and, and motivate them to, to engage in this great and marvelous work. But not a ton of, of theology so far. We're starting to see it in section 18 with the worth of the soul and the reasons behind the Savior's sacrifice for them. Section 19 will, will increase that even further. There is some deep doctrine here. And it is powerful. And it's meant to reassure, or better said, it's meant to put into perspective the kind of sacrifice that God is asking Martin Harris to make. If you ever struggle with your own willingness to sacrifice, section 19's context might be helpful for you and me as well. So let's start at the beginning. Section 19, verse 1, allow the Lord to introduce himself. This isn't Joseph asking for a favor. This is God asking for your heart. I am Alpha and Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the A to Z. Christ the Lord. Yea, even I am He, the beginning and the end, the Redeemer of the world. You understand who this commandment is coming from, Martin? 
I'm the start to the, and the finish. I'm, I'll be here the entire duration. You can trust the process because I'll supervise it from beginning to end. I am the start of your faith, Martin, and I can be the end of your fear. We're beginning something here together. You can be part of this alpha. I'll see it through to completion. I'll still be here as the omega, even long after you're gone. And again, I'm the redeemer of the world. I want to put this revelation in context of me buying something back. You're desperately hoping to get your land back. Oh, there's more important things to redeem than your property. Verse 2, I, having accomplished and finished the will of him whose I am, even the Father, concerning me, having done this that I might subdue all things unto myself. You see how he's introducing himself? In the same way he did to the Nephites when he first descended in 3 Nephi 11. I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified would come into the world, and I have come to do the will of the Father who sent me. I am a submissive son. Will you be, Martin? I've done the will of him whose I am. While we're talking about possessions, the Father possesses me. I freely submit myself to him. Everything I've done has been in submission to his will. And in the process, I have subdued all things unto myself. Interesting how that connection comes. I've subdued myself to the Father, and in the process, all things are subdued unto myself. It seems fitting that you can demand perfect obedience from, from nature itself when you offer perfect obedience to the Father. Then in verse 3, retaining all power, even to the destroying of Satan and his works at the end of the world, and the last great day of judgment, which I shall pass upon the inhabitants thereof, judging every man according to his works and the deeds which he hath done. You start in a sense the big picture perspective that he's trying to give Martin Harris here. This is so much bigger than 150 acres. From where I stand, that's a speck in the New York wilderness. I retain all power. So no need to worry about retaining your precious property. This work is meant to destroy Satan. He who was trying to destroy you and the work of God. Keep all of this in perspective of Judgment Day, Martin. I will judge every man according to his deeds, and you have the chance today to do such a good deed, to help move along this work of greatest worth. Now, in the context of judgment, he then shifts in verse 4 for the next several verses to talk about what final judgment consists of. And he also puts in perspective the need for repentance, which is what we were learning back in section 18. Again, section 19 teaches the, the same basic message. We have to help the world repent. Section 18, you understand, Oliver, why you needed to trans help translate the Book of Mormon? And why you've got to rely upon those words? Because the world needs to be stirred up into repentance. It's ripened in iniquity. They've got to know there's hope for them. Section 19, Martin, you understand your role in all of this? It's got to be paid for. It's got to be produced and published so that people can repent of their sins. Because if they don't, verse 4, surely every man must repent or suffer, for I, God, am endless. You see, this is the stick side. The word association in section 18 was joy. In section 19, it's suffering. 
but it's the Savior's suffering that he'll get to shortly in hopes that we will accept his in order to avoid our own. The consequence of sin is always suffering. Why? Because the result of sin is always suffering. In some ways, it's the law of the harvest. What we have sown, so we shall reap. We have caused suffering in others. And the only way to almost metabolize that, to take it back upon ourselves, is to experience suffering. I mean, that's hell. Not God, I don't know, condemning us to fire and brimstone. But this feeling that we are stuck with that I have caused all this suffering to others. And I am standing in the way of the Savior who desires to come to their rescue and my own. I mean, the Savior will reach and redeem them from their suffering, even without my repentance. That's what his suffering enabled and empowered him to do. But where does that leave me? It leaves me with my own suffering. And as he mentions in verse 4, there is an endless aspect of this. But we need to understand what the Lord means by that. Now we're going to see verse 4 in the context of 5, 6, 7, 8. But also read verse 4 in the context of 1, 2, 3. That I'm Jesus. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the beginning and the end. And if I'm the start to the finish, there is no end around. There's no way to get around me. We either repent in order to come unto Him. Remember, those two are inseparable in section 18. We repent to come unto Him, or we don't repent, in which case we remain outside of His presence, which is suffering. How great shall be their joy with me in the kingdom of my Father. Togetherness with Him is joy. Absence from Him is suffering. In fact, with that reality, I don't think God even has to superimpose anything else to make it worse. As President Packer used to say, we are more often punished by our sins than for them. In other words, the punishment is inherent in the sin itself. And as we hold on to these sins with an, with an, an unwillingness to repent, then we are stiff-arming God and all the love and grace that He is offering us. His arms are stretched out still, and yet we are distancing ourselves from Him. Without that embrace enabled by repentance, then we will suffer. And we'll be the ones inflicting it upon ourselves, punished by our sins, not even needing to be punished for them. Now, go from 4 to 5. Wherefore, I revoke not the judgments which I shall pass. Again, there's no getting around it. I'm beginning to end. But woes shall go forth. It's a far cry from joy. Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, yea, to those who are found on my left hand. But then he softens things. Remember, we're bumper bowling here. God is always trying to help us find the center between justice and mercy. Too much justice, we don't think we can repent. Too much mercy, we don't think that we have to. So verse 5 is definitely the justice speaking to us. Weeping, wailing, gnashing teeth, woe unto you. I can't revoke those judgments. Verse 6, nevertheless, so you get this sense he's backing up just a touch. It is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written endless torment. Now this verse, if it doesn't confuse you, then you're not paying attention. It's like, wait, what, what did you just say? Well, I said, I never wrote down that there would be no end. I only wrote that it would be endless. And we're going, um, I don't know how you define terms, but those seem synonymous to me. 
um, if it's endless, then it has no end. And the Lord's like, well, I can see where you would, where you would think that. But that's not how I'm defining things. What? No. All I did was write down its endless torment. That doesn't necessarily mean there's no end to it. Well, then what does endless mean? So glad you asked. Verse 7. Again, let me rephrase this a little bit. It is written eternal damnation. Well, that sounds just as bad. Wherefore, it is more express than other scriptures that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men altogether for my name's glory. Wait, so what are you doing here? Endless doesn't mean no end. And then let me guess, eternal damnation doesn't mean that the damnation lasts eternally? Yeah, you're getting it. Well, I don't know what I'm getting, but why would you say that? I just thought that you meant that endless torment was never ending and eternal damnation was eternal. And it's like the Lord is saying, oh, I know. I knew you'd take it that way. And that's a good thing. It's, it's strong language. It's the justice side. Because too many people weren't taking my commandments seriously enough. So I needed language that would be more express than other scriptures. The merciful ones, for example. You see, the tricky part is, like I said earlier at the beginning, I've got different kids with different natures, and some, even if I hint at disappointment, they're devastated. And others, I can be as clear and as a disciplinarian as possible, and they're still like, eh, not a big deal. It's like, ah. You see, the hard part here is you have to know which audience you're a part of. Are you the type that needs express language and strong cautions against iniquity because you don't take sin seriously enough? Or are you the type that is so kind of high-tuned that anytime God shows any hint of displeasure, your volume is so loud that it devastates and destroys you? Why do you think the scriptures are so full of both justice and mercy? That's the power of proving contraries. It establishes the spectrum. But you have to know which group of scriptures was intended for you. And you will change at different times of life. There are, that's why it's all there. There are times you need the justice. There are times you need the mercy. If you're the type that needs the stronger language, the, the more express expressions, the, the, the cautions against justice that would literally scare the hell out of you. That's what he's trying to do, scare you out of hell. Please come. I needed something that would work on the hearts of the children of men, specifically the hardened ones. Those of you who are soft-hearted already, please don't take this uh, to push you over the edge into some toxic perfectionism or some hopelessness that I'll never be good enough. If the Jeremiads of Jeremiah are too strong for you in the Old Testament, then read Hosea and see this merciful husband that is, is forgiving even of his adulterous wife. That's how God is with his repentant children. If the Jesus overturning the tables in the, in the temple is too strong for you, then focus on the Jesus who turns the other cheek and vice versa. If you are pacified and lulled into a sense of carnal security by the mercy of God, which is everywhere in Scripture, then look to some other Scriptures that are more expressed than the ones that you're consoling yourself with. 
realize that you've got to wake up and repent of your sins. I hope this is making sense. This is a difficult passage, but such an important one. I am not trying to open a can of worms and say that God plays semantic games with us. Oh, I knew you'd take it that way, but I meant something different. I'm not trying to get you to second guess every verse of Scripture. Well, what if he's just saying that to... No. But when it comes to moving us forward along the path, there are carrots and sticks, and they are meant for two different types of people. Or the same person at different times or stages in their life. There are times we all need to be told, Neither do I condemn thee. And times we all need to hear, go and sin no more. Please read your scriptures with a discerning eye. You can understand their meaning, but please understand their intention. Here they weren't understanding the meaning the way the Lord intended it, but his intention is now clear. I'm trying to convince you, you need to repent. And those who don't think you do, maybe words like, endless torment and eternal damnation will you convince you to get up and move forward. Think about it this way. Because I know proving contraries can be difficult and striking a balance can be hard. But remember when you were little and you started learning how to ride a bike and balance was the hardest thing? And then you realized it's actually easier to balance when I'm going forward. If I have some momentum, I tend to stay upright. Well, now flip the order. How do I know if I'm balanced? I'm moving forward. I'm progressing along the path. If I'm spiritually stagnant and not repenting of my sins because I don't think that I can, then it's been too hot. If I'm spiritually stagnant and not moving forward and, and not repenting because I don't think I need to, then I'm too cold. That's what Alma taught Corianton at the end of Alma 42. There's a Goldilocks zone here. Don't let your sins trouble you anymore. Well, let them trouble you a little. Just enough to move you towards repentance. Again, that's how I know I'm balanced. I'm moving forward. Keep that in mind as we see how the Lord really intends us to understand endless and eternal torment or damnation. It starts in verse 8. Wherefore I will explain unto you this mystery, for it is meet unto you to know even as mine apostles. So he admits it. Yeah, I get it. This is tricky. I'll admit this is a mystery. You need to get it. The apostles need to get it, because they're the ones out there crying repentance. So they're going to need to know how to get into the Goldilocks zone too. They've got to set up bumper bowling. How just, how merciful, how do I do this? Every apostle needs it. Every parent needs it. Every crier of repentance does. Verse 9, I speak unto you that are chosen in this thing, even as one, that you may enter into my rest. So again, this is a mystery. This is difficult doctrine. I'm giving it to you that I've chosen to go out and cry repentance, so you know how to strike the right balance. And here it is, verse 10. For behold, the mystery of godliness, how great it is. For behold, I am endless. And the punishment which is given for my hand is endless punishment, for endless is my name. Wherefore... Eternal punishment is God's punishment. Endless punishment is God's punishment. Now do you get it? And we're probably going, oh, I'm still not sure about that. Well, let's try to walk ourselves through this. He says, endless is my name. So now do you understand what I mean by endless punishment? I'm eternal. Now do you get what eternal punishment signifies? Okay, let me just try to make this clear. 
When I say eternal or endless punishment, I'm talking about the quality of the punishment, not the quantity of the punishment. In other words, I'm talking about the degree, not the duration. Endless describes what the punishment is like, not how long the punishment lasts. Here's an analogy. You think of a prison, and the prison is always there. But the specific prisoner isn't always in the prison. He goes in and pays his debt to society and then is released again, even as the prison itself remains. Does that make sense? The justice of God demands this perfect punishment. It will always be there. He is endless. He is eternal. But the specific person that suffers for their own sins doesn't stay there eternally. You see, even punishment itself was never meant to be simply retribution. It was meant to be redemption, education, preparation, not just probation. Now, if the thought of staying in prison forever convinces you to try harder to avoid it in the first place, then I'm all for that. If duration is what scares you, great. But to be honest, degree should scare you just as much. It should scare you more. And it's, again, it's not, scary is probably the wrong word here. It, maybe put it this way. If duration is cautionary to the point that you're going to try to obey, then degree ought to be even more cautionary. Because let me explain what that degree entails. If I'm endless and I'm eternal, and that describes the punishment that's out there, well, it's going to start helping you understand the price I paid to help you all avoid that kind of punishment. Because guess what? My atonement is endless and eternal as well. Amulek said infinite and eternal. We could say the same things here. Endless and eternal, but not in duration. Christ's suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross were not endless in duration. They were endless in degree. It was the depth, not the length, that the Lord is trying to explain to them. All in hopes that it will work upon the hearts of the children of men for His name's glory. So that He can have joy with us in the kingdom of His Father. See why now He says in verse 13, Wherefore, for all of those reasons that I just explained, I command you to repent and keep the commandments which you have received by the hand of my servant Joseph Smith Jr. in my name. There, there it is again. Tie it together. Repentance and obedience always hand in hand. But you see why I'm calling you to repent? Because I'm trying to help you avoid endless and eternal punishment. My kind of punishment. Godly sorrow. That's why Paul talks about Mustering within us, allow it, broken heart, contrite spirit, allow us to feel some measure of godly sorrow. Otherwise, as we suffer for our sins, oh, it will be a godly sorrow that only God Himself has endured. That's what He gets at in verse 15. Therefore, I command you to repent. Repent lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth, and by my wrath, and by my anger, and your sufferings be sore." Now he's starting to describe what godly, endless, eternal suffering is. How sore you know not, 
how exquisite, you know not, yea, how hard to bear, you know not. And it's as if the Lord is pleading, and I don't want you to know. I know it because it's my kind of suffering, it's what I endured. Endless and eternal in depth and degree, not in duration. Do you have any idea what I'm trying to save you from? No. It's more than you could possibly imagine. You know not. In fact, I didn't even know it. And I'm omniscient. Remember that incredible passage in Alma chapter 7? That the Lord took upon Himself our sins and death, but also our sicknesses and our infirmities, our weakness, our sorrow, all of those things. He took them upon himself, choice on his part. Why? So that his bowels would be filled with mercy according to the flesh. That he might know according to the flesh how to succor his people. He goes on to explain in that passage, The Spirit knoweth all things, but that he might know according to the flesh. You see what Alma is trying to help us grapple with here? There are some things that even omniscience doesn't know, at least not experientially, until you've experienced them. Elder Maxwell described it as the difference between cognitive understanding and experiential understanding. I can say I understand the pains of labor because I've read what to expect when you're expected. And I've been there in the delivery room when my wife is experientially understanding the pains of labor. I don't know at all what she's really going through. So for Jesus to admit there, the Spirit knows all things. I understood the pains of mortality in pre-mortality, but it was cognitive. It's when I condescended and wrapped your injured flesh around me that I felt according to that flesh just what suffering and sin and death and pain and infirmity really feels like. I had no idea. Why do you think I pled three times? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why do you think the Gospel writers talked about me falling on my face and being sore amazed or astonished? How do you astonish omniscience? You go from head to heart. You go from feeling to flesh. You you experience it, and it's sore than you've ever imagined, and more exquisite, and more hard to bear. And that's what I'm trying to save you from. Do you understand what eternal and endless means? What it cost me? Repent. I don't want you to have to feel that. When he says, I'll smite you by the rod of my mouth, don't, don't picture vengeance there. The rod of his mouth? What do we know the, the rod to be? The Word of God. That's why it's the rod of His mouth. When he talks about this sharp two-edged sword, what is it? The sword of His Word that's coming from His mouth. It's the commandments of God. There's no getting around them. This is Alpha and Omega. This is the only way to come back home. In fact, it's less about you being smitten by the rod of God and you running headlong into it before you come to your senses. As Elder Packer has said, we never cross the line without first overruling a warning. We bump up against the Word of God, the commandments of God. When I was a little kid in Texas, in elementary school, we didn't play sports during recess. We played tag. That was it. We just ran and chased each other down. 
And I remember one fateful day, I was being chased and I was running for my life. And as I was sprinting to get away from somebody near the building, somebody walked out in front of me, not knowing that they were about to get run over. And not wanting to trample them to death, I turned blindly. I had no idea where I was going, but I knew I needed to avoid the, the collision. And so I just turned. And unbeknownst to me, right next to me was a metal pole that was holding up the, the roof over the, the walkway. And I ran into it full speed. Next thing I knew, I woke up in the principal's office with a, a bag of ice on my head. I had just pounded into that thing. Oh, it stopped me. Believe me. And sometimes as we are running headlong away from God, His commandments are there. The iron rod is there, not just to help us show the way to the tree of life, but to keep us from, from running headlong into the, the river of filthy water. That boundary is there for our protection. And sometimes we, we hit it hard and it wakes us up and helps us realize what we, that it could have been worse where we were headed. In fact, as I came to and looked around, right next to me in the principal's office was my best friend. And he had a bag of ice too on his hand. And I said, what happened to you? And he smiled sheepishly and said, I was standing right next to the pole. And when I saw you turn and run, about to run into it, all I knew to do, it was just instinct. I just stuck my hand out to try to save you. And you crushed my hand with your forehead against that pole. Still hurts. And I just remember thinking, I love you, man. <laughs> you, you tried to come to my rescue. Honestly, that's, that, that's a, a juvenile example. Forgive me for it. But to see what the Lord is trying to do to soften the blow that I will take that suffering, sore, exquisite, hard to bear, but I'll take it in hopes that you won't, because I know how unbending the Word of God is, because I am God's Word. So please repent, so that none of those consequences come. I know their nature better than anyone. And then he explains it even more personally. I don't know, there's something about this next passage, 16 through 19, that just moves me deeply. It's as if it took Jesus 1,800 years before he could finally come to a point where he could talk about what he experienced in Gethsemane and on Calvary. What did the atonement mean for him? He's finally able to talk about it. Here it is, verse 16, Behold, I, God, have suffered these things, endless, eternal torment, punishment, in degree, not in duration. I've suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. I know this sounds like stick, but can you sense the carrot here? Can you get even a more personal echo of what he said back in section 18 about the worth of souls? So worth it that I suffered death in the flesh? Here he's saying it again. I've suffered these things so you won't have to. You just need to repent instead. I know repentance seems hard, but it's only hard at the beginning, and it saves you from an infinite hardness at the end. In fact, it's so fascinating to watch the Lord and Lucifer argue over the order in which justice and mercy ought to be extended. You see, before a sin is committed, the Lord has dibs on justice. He's trying to scare us away from disobedience, right? You know that the consequences are too extreme. Don't. Just obey. 
It's justice. But what does Lucifer preach before the sin? Ah, it's fine. You can always repent. Scriptures are full of that promise. I mean, the bishops would push over. Everybody does it. It'll be fine. Don't just let it, let it ride. But once the sin occurs, once it's committed, it's a fascinating thing to watch the Lord and Lucifer switch scriptures. Take the opposite approach. Because after the sin, what does the Lord teach? Mercy. You can come home. You'll have to repent. And, and there is a price to pay. There's a, a struggling. There's a godly sorrow that needs to come to change your heart. But it's a process we can walk through together. I'm with you on this. On the other hand, what does Lucifer start preaching? Oh, he's not going to talk about mercy ever again. It's all justice from that moment forward. Oh, it's too late for you. You can never change. You're stuck in this. That's, that's why we talk about the chains of hell. There's no escape. Please remember that. The next time you're on the, the verge of crossing the line, picture in your mind Jesus and Lucifer just about ready to switch the approaches that they'll take. I've suffered so you won't have to. But, verse 17, if they would not repent, they must suffer, even as I. And then he describes what that suffering entailed for him. I've never seen it described more personally than here. Verse 18, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. And would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. You understand how hard that was for me? And I'm God. You want to talk about pain threshold? I could go beyond yours. That's what King Benjamin taught. That he would suffer hunger, thirst, and fatigue even more than man could suffer, except it be unto death. If you'd been in Gethsemane, you have gone unconscious. Welcome oblivion to save you from the worst of it. But me, God, never pulled that escape hatch. I wasn't just an alpha to begin it. I was an omega to see it through to the end. The greatest of all, and yet becoming the lowest of all, descending below all things, I trembled because of pain. You ever seen someone in so much agony that they're shaking as a result? To bleed at every pore, to picture what Jesus would have looked like as he emerged from the shadows, as Judas was coming with this army of soldiers. Robes of reminding red is how Elder Maxwell describes the second coming. Reminding us of what? Of this. Of what he wore so that we might be clothed in white when he was clothed in red. He trod the winepress alone and stained all of his raiment. Again, the irony that our sins stain him with our blood, but his blood frees us from the stains of our sin. To suffer both body and spirit, the sensitive soul that had never struggled with sin, and now it's all just piled upon him. No wonder he was tempted to shrink. No wonder he didn't want to drink the bitter cup. He'd never tasted anything so bitter. And yet, verse 19, another nevertheless. He used that word earlier to give us hope in repentance. Well, here, this nevertheless is what made that nevertheless possible. Verse 19, 
Glory be to the Father. He deserves all the credit for not removing the bitter cup even when I begged him for it. God deserves glory for his divine restraint, for not coming to my rescue in order to come to the rescue of all humanity instead. Glory be to the Father. I partook. And then this phrase, I've never seen a more powerful description of the atonement than this, and it comes from the atoning one himself. I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. That is doctrine worth digging into. My preparations? Wait, at, at, at the end of the crucifixion you said, it is finished. I thought you were done. The atonement was over. It ended. He said, no, 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 no. That, yeah, the suffering did, but that suffering was just my preparations. When is the atonement really at work? When did I atone for your sins? Oh, please don't limit me to the garden or the cross. I'm still atoning. Because if atonement is to be made at one with someone, that's what I've been trying to do ever since. Every time I condescend to be with you in your sufferings and sins and sorrows, I am at one with you. I'm atoning and why would I want to? Because of what I felt then. I am fully prepared to make myself both willing and able to join you in your sufferings. I took your place so that I could be with you in every one of mortality's nightmares. And in the process, I hope that I've saved you from staying in any of those nightmares yourself. You can come out. I've prepared the way for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So repent so that I can redeem you, so that I can buy you back. That's the work of greatest worth because you are of greatest worth to me. Joy, kingdom of my Father. That way it's not endless and eternal punishment. It's endless and eternal joy. And that can apply both in terms of duration as well as degree. That's what Jesus is offering us, is what he's hoping for. That's why verse 20 starts with another wherefore. Because of everything I've just explained to you, the peak I've given you into Gethsemane, wherefore I command you again to repent lest I humble you with my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest you suffer those punishments of which I have spoken, of which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree, you have tasted at the time I withdrew my spirit. Now do you understand why he's commanding us to repent? And why he deserves to be able to make that commandment? You can either humble yourself and confess your sins, or you will be humbled by God's almighty power. Remember, Ezra Taft Benson taught that. God will have a humble people. We can either choose to be humble or we will be compelled to be humble. That's Alma 5. Have you been stripped of pride? Oh no, please don't strip me of it. I want to take it off myself. I choose to kneel before God rather than have to be brought to my knees by circumstance. Humbly, I want to accept Christ's suffering 
so that I don't have to suffer those punishments myself. Is it pride that's keeping us from that? Is it stubbornness? There's this amazing scene in C.S. Lewis's great book, The Great Divorce, which is about a bunch of people from hell going on a literal field trip to heaven. They get to check it out and have these angelic guides, and then they all decide to get back on the bus and go back to hell where they're comfortable. The worst part of the whole book is I see myself in every chapter. I'm like, darn it, I do that too. But in this one scene, there's this citizen of hell that's there being guided around heaven, and he just is so frustrated with this thought of, I'm the, I should be here. I deserve this. I was, I was good. He says, I've done my best my whole life, and all I'm asking for are my rights. And the angel just keeps trying to, to explain to him, none of us got our rights. We got something so much better than that. I didn't deserve this, but the Lord offered it to me, and, and humbly I accepted it. And that's just too much for the, for the little hellion. He's like, no, I'm not going to take any of that. And then using a word that's a little stronger in British English than in American English, this man says, I'm not asking for any bleeding charity. To which the angel responds immediately, then do, right now, ask for it. Ask for the bleeding charity, capital B, capital C. You understand what he's trying to convey? The bleeding charity of Christ. It's the only thing that can wash away scarlet sin. And if we don't ask for that bleeding charity, then we will be punished in the same way that Jesus took upon himself in order for us to avoid. Please just give me your sins and I'll face the music for them. Salvation was my song, we say in a sacrament hymn. See, there's this haunting verse near the end of 2 Nephi 9 when it speaks of the unrepentant, now condemned, and what they'll finally have to admit, what they'll be forced to confess since they wouldn't confess their sins earlier. They'll simply say, God, you were right. Your judgments are just. I know my guilt. I transgressed thy law. And my transgressions are mine. Now, when I first read that, it hit me. My transgressions are mine? Well. Of course they're yours. That, that's redundant. Whose else would they be? And right then the Spirit whispered, they would have been mine if you had simply handed them over. If you would confess and repent and give them to me. Mine is the name, the only one accepted under heaven. I would have put my name on your sins, called them my own, suffered for them as if I'd committed them myself. And perhaps by watching that, by watching with me one hour, it would have cured you from the desire to hold on to those sins yourself, or even better, to cure you from wanting to commit them in the first place. That's my grace, which is both restorative and preventative medicine. Now the Lord adds one other thing at the end of verse 20, which we just read, that, that it would have been amazing for the initial audience, Martin Harris. Remember he says, Yo, you've got a little taste of this. You have no idea really what I went through. Exquisite, hard to bear, sore, you have no idea. But you have had a taste in the least degree. The smallest hint of it all. Well, when was that? At the time I withdrew my spirit. You see, if the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, 
is what's used to help us understand the telestial kingdom, the glory of the stars. Imagine how devastated you'd be to go from starlight to pitch blackness. But if it's as scary to be in that dark with the loss of starlight, imagine the loss of moonlight, which is the terrestrial glory, akin to the glory of Jesus Christ, and then take it up infinitely to the loss of sunlight, which is the loss of the Father and the Father's kingdom. It's like, Martin, when you gave up the 116 pages and lost the Spirit, do you remember how devastated you were? To the point that you, you couldn't eat, you couldn't sleep, you, you didn't want to go face Joseph and face the music. And when you finally dragged yourself there and Joseph asked you what happened, what did you say? Head in hands, you cried, I have lost my soul. I've lost my soul. You only lost starlight that day. You want to know what it's like to lose sunlight? You have sensed what it would be like to give up telestial glory. You have no idea what it would be like to lose celestial glory. The times in my life where I have most clearly sensed the departure of the Holy Ghost because of a choice that I made, if that is the least degree, if that is tasting in the smallest, then I want to repent of my sins. I want to change. I want to do better. I want to rely upon the grace of God to obey. Now in verse 21, I command you that you preach not but repentance. It's what everybody needs to hear. And show not these things unto the world until it is wisdom in me. For they cannot bear meat now, but milk they must receive. Wherefore they must not know these things lest they perish. You see, the Lord is still trying desperately to strike the right balance and help us strike it too. If we come marching out, and especially in, in Calvinistic time period in American history, that it's sinners in the hands of an angry God, and, and then we're just, oh no, he, he was just, he was kidding. That's not what he meant by it. Ooh, that, that, is, that is dangerous knowledge to someone who's going to not correct the pendulum, but overcorrect it. And swing it away from works so far that it becomes cheap grace and easy salvation. And just put it on Jesus' tab. He's got it covered. Oh, they're, they're going to need milk before you get to meat. We're going to try to strike this balance. So cry repentance. Preach nothing but, but do it so carefully so that you can start seeing people move forward instead of simply heave a sigh of relief that God's not that angry after all and everything's going to be okay, even if I suffer for a while. As long as the duration's not that bad, then I'll deal with the degree. Oh, no. He then says in verse 23 what to me is one of the most simple approaches to the Christian life that you can imagine. I've honestly pondered this verse and sometimes asked myself, can it really be that simple? Could that really be the answer to this? Remember in section 11, there were a few of those just very quick, almost staccato kind of commandments to Hiram. And it's like, really? That's it? Just trust in that spirit that leads me to do good? To live justly? To love mercy? To walk humbly with my God? Really? Is, can it be that simple? I think so. Verse 23, learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit and you shall have peace in me. That's what real repentance looks like. That's the balance that will help us move forward along the path. 
Not so fixated on, oh, have I been too just? Have I been too merciful? Am I leaning in this side? Am I leaning in that? Oh, no. I mean, remember, again, 2 Nephi 9, what Jacob says? That the path is straight and narrow. It's tricky. That, that part sounds a little bit hard to stay on. But then he says, but it lies in a direct course before him, before Jesus. He is the keeper of the gate, and he employs no servant there. It's just him. And no matter how narrow it gets, it's a straight course, a direct line to him. And what's the easiest way to walk in a straight line? It's not to look at your feet and make sure that they're exactly one ahead of the other. It's to look up at the goal and just walk there. I love that mental image, especially when I sometimes work with students or friends who are struggling with the day-to-day -day stepping forward and are so fixated on their feet, scared to death of a misstep. And I just want to say, raise your sights, look up, see Jesus, and just come. If you'll do that, you'll never be too just or too merciful with yourself. What does it boil down to? Learn of me. Study the New Testament. Study the Book of Mormon. See what he's like and how he's lived and how he treats people on whatever end of the spectrum they're in. There is no greater lesson to learn than to learn of Jesus. Now, to go from that lesson, there's still a little distance there. I'm the fly on the wall. I'm just looking through the lens of these apostles that were writing about him. Well, what's the next line? Listen to my words. Oh, now it's a little more personal. Remember how he said that back in section 18? It's one thing to know my words. It's another thing to hear my voice. Is it beginning to become familiar to you? You see, learning of me, that's, that's more of the generals. Listen to my words, that seems to be more of the specifics. How does it apply to me? What, what's he saying? I've seen all of these examples that he has set. Well, which one am I supposed to follow right now? Am I supposed to be Mary or Martha? Am I supposed to be Peter or John? What, what, what do I do? Well. You've learned of me, now you understand all the possibilities. Well, now listen to my words. And if you want to make it as specific as possible, walk in the meekness of my spirit. What would I do in this situation? Have you seen enough precedents set, enough examples? Have you listened to my whispering that, well, this is what I would do in this situation? And then do you have the courage and meekness to walk in that direction? If you do, you'll have peace in me. You won't be fixated on your feet, and you won't be fixated on other people's feet either. Are they coming to Jesus? Are they making progress? That's all I need to worry about. I don't need to, to stress over how long it's going to take to get there. Since, as we've already seen in this section, eh, duration isn't really what's on the Lord's mind anyway. My friends, I do think it is that simple. Learn and listen and walk and do it all with Jesus. He puts his name to it in verse 24. Just so again, you know the keeper of the gate right there in front of you, direct line. I am Jesus Christ. I came by the will of the Father and I do his will. And his will is that you repent and that I make it possible. My work and glory is to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life. Your work is to keep the commandments. And I'll help you do that 
at the same time I help you repent of the times that you haven't. Those two always come together in my mind. Now he's still not done. He's going to get a little bit more specific to Martin Harris's what's really on his mind. Said so this has been an incredible discourse. I, I had a different question. It was about uh, my my farm. <laughs> Um, I, I need to come up with $3,000. I hope that Martin is beginning to see, oh no, I, I, I have been answering your question. Or at least I've been preparing you to receive the answer in the spirit that I'm trying to give it. I'm Jesus. I came to do the will of the Father. Will you? I did His will. And now here's His will for you. Verse 25, again I command thee, Martin Harris, that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor seek thy neighbor's life. Now right there, he's probably going, wait, what? what? That, that wasn't my question at all. I'm not coming with adultery or murder on my, on my list. I mean, we're going to get to the 10th commandment about not coveting property. But now, whoa, are, are we thinking 7th and 6th? And don't commit adultery. Don't kill. But think about it this way. One of the... The hinge points on the loss of the 116 pages, the, the, and the most immediate source of pressure on Martin Harris was his wife, Lucy. She had initially had expressed faith in, in Joseph's mission and wanted to support things, but then, but I really want to know for myself, I, got, I need proof. I mean, she was even more Martin than Martin was in that, in that aspect. And with that in mind, how do you think she's going to feel about mortgaging half the family farm? I mean, yes, he says, you need to hold on to enough to support thy family. But it's probably not going to be supporting his wife to the degree that she'd been used to. And what about all those neighbors that had threatened to boycott the Book of Mormon? That were making Martin and everyone else a laughing stock in the community? Now, there's got to be some friction at home with his wife. And there's got to be some animosity toward his neighbors. And I love the fact that the Lord calls it out from the very beginning. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't seek your neighbor's life. And again, kind of like what we saw earlier when the Lord calls Martin wicked and says you're trying to destroy Joseph's gifts and the work of God. And he'd be like, what are you talking about? Maybe there is, again, some semantic power here, some, some rhetorical persuasion trying to help things work upon the hearts of the children of men a little more forcefully. He's using some express language here. Oh, yeah, my wife and I don't see eye to eye on this. Well, be careful about the first steps you're taking down this path, because I know the final steps. I am Alpha and Omega, after all. And the way that you're viewing your neighbors with some, some anger and some antipathy, I know where that can lead to. Remember, the Lord always sees the end of the path, even if we're just starting to inch in a certain direction. I think he's helping Martin see that in verse 25. Then 26 is beautiful because it's really specific to his issue. In fact, I said earlier that this could be a two-verse revelation. Technically, I guess we should have added a third, and that's verse 26. Again, I command thee that thou shalt not covet thine own property, but impart it freely to the printing of the Book of Mormon, which contains the truth and the Word of God. So take 26 and add it to 34 and 35, and that's all Martin really needed to know at the bare minimum. Go ahead and impart your uh, possessions, your property freely, because, I mean, somebody's got to print the Book of Mormon, and nobody else can pay for it. I mean, Joseph is getting room and board from the Whitmers, and Oliver is endlessly grateful every time that Joseph Knight Sr. brings over a few more pieces of paper to write on. These guys have nothing. But you, Martin, you've got one of the most prosperous farms in Palmyra. 
so impart it. Do it freely. Because what is the Book of Mormon worth? Believe me, the records are worth more than the plates. And the plates are gold. That ought to put in perspective what's even more valuable than the wealth of the world. It contains the truth and the Word of God. So let it spread. But I also love the way he says it to Martin. He's already said you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife, but now he says you also shouldn't covet thine own property. Now here, I, speaking of semantics and definitions, I'd be out. wait a minute, covet, doesn't that mean wanting something that doesn't belong to you? You just said, I shouldn't covet what does belong to me. You called it thine own property. You recognize that it's mine. I can't covet what I already own. Coveting is somebody else's stuff. And I just picture the Lord looking at him, unblinking, unflinching, like, oh, I know the definition, and I'm sticking with it. Coveting is wanting what doesn't belong to you. You're questioning my use of the word covet. You should be questioning my use of the phrase, thine own. That's what you need to wonder about, Martin. You see what Martin, oh, so it isn't my farm? Later on in the Doctrine and Covenants, I'll help you understand the difference between ownership and stewardship. But for now, stick with stewardship. Okay, son? I love the way the Lord says that. I've learned from my own experience, it's so much easier to be generous with things that don't belong to me. I figured that out in college when friends would come over and see milk in the fridge or cereal on the counter. Like, hey, can I have some? And I'd be like, sure. It's Matt's, or Brandon's, or Jason's, or Jeremy's, or Brad's. Great roommates all those years, and I was really generous with their stuff. Sorry, guys. But if we can treat our stuff as the Lord's stuff, and stop coveting it, it's like, oh, that's what you want to use it for? I mean, it's yours. I'm just a steward. I'll do whatever you want with your property. Wait, and, and you're actually going to leave some acreage for me so I can provide for my family? Wow. That's really generous of you. It's so much easier to give up 151 acres when you recognize they're not really yours to begin with. Now back to the idea of the Book of Mormon, truth and word of God. Verse 27, which is my word to the Gentile, that soon it may go to the Jew, first, last, last, first, of whom the Lamanites are a remnant, that's the key audience Mormon and Moroni had in mind, that they may believe the gospel and look not for a Messiah to come who has already come. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss the spiritual Messiah because you were expecting a political Messiah instead. Don't worry about the temporal things that are on your mind, Martin, when it's the spiritual things that will make the biggest difference. The Messiah has come. Trust in that. Verse 28, again I command thee, that thou shalt pray vocally as well as in thy heart, yea, before the world as well as in secret, in public as well as in private. Both sides of all of these halves. Because Martin, what I'm asking you to do, I know is hard, and it's going to take my help. My grace is sufficient. Ask for it. Do it out loud. Do it silently. Do it in front of people. Do it behind closed doors. Just seek my help in everything you do. I'll be there. Verse 29, thou shalt declare glad tidings. Yea, publish it upon the mountains, upon every high place, and among every people that thou shalt be permitted to see. I'm letting you, I'm permitting you to have contact with people that need your message. So declare it, and do it gladly, since it is glad tidings. Be more carrot than stick on these things. Now, what does gospel mean? Good news. 
the angels came and, and brought glad tidings of great joy that would be to all people. Well, you get to be one of those angels, Martin. Go declare repentance. And I love that he says to publish it specifically upon the mountains and every high place. Because what does that do? If that's where the standard is unfurled, then seeing it raises people's sights. Help them look up to me, not down on the path that they seem to be stumbling over. In verse 30, thou shalt do it with all humility, because what you're asking them to do will require an intense amount of humility. You better have it yourself. Trusting in me, since you're asking them to do the same. Reviling not against revilers. Maybe that goes back to don't seek thy neighbor's life. Don't respond with negativity to their negativity. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. If people are going to boycott the Book of Mormon, they're certainly not going to want to accept a copy if you're angry and threatening to throw it at them. Again, from Elder Robert D. Hales, the last thing we should do when somebody attacks us for not being Christian is to respond to them in an unchristian way. Don't prove them right. Don't revile against revilers. Then it just justifies them, and they think they're right for having reviled us in the first place. See, they deserved it. Humility, there's repentance. Trust, there's faith. Not reviling against revilers, there's forgiveness. It's all part of this. And then in 31, fascinating statement. And of tenets thou shalt not talk, but thou shalt declare repentance and faith on the Savior and remission of sins by baptism and by fire, yea, even the Holy Ghost. So he says what to teach and what not to teach in that verse. What should they teach? Fourth article of faith. Faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. And what to avoid? Tenets. Now, what's a tenet? In the 1828 dictionary, which, by the way, was not just a, an amazing insight into words, but also a great insight into religion. Noah Webster was, was a convert to evangelical Christianity, and he went all in. And so often when he's defining a term, he's, he tries to use scriptural language whenever he can. You know how often dictionaries will, here's the term, and then I'll use it in a sentence. Well, so often it'd be a scripture that he'd use instead, or try to couch things in religious terms. He wasn't just trying to teach people the English language. In a way, he was trying to help people learn the language of God. Love Webster for that. But he says this about Tenet. He defines it as any opinion, principle, dogma, or doctrine which a person believes or maintains as true. And then here's his example. The tenets of Christians are adopted from the scriptures, but different interpretations give rise to a great diversity of tenets. Remember, those are our, our hermeneutic challenges, our interpretive difficulties. Webster's just describing the, the, the ultimate struggle of the Protestant Reformation. We have scripture. This is our authority. Well, what is it saying to us? Oh, you thought it said that? I thought it meant this. And what ends up happening? The Word of God gets fought over and rested and subdivided into the various sects espousing their various tenets. And they're fighting over them. Wars of words and tumults of opinions. It's amazing that here the Lord, just go cry repentance. Remember what he says at the end of section 10. If they're willing to repent and come unto me, good enough for now. Let, call it my church. We'll work out the details later on. I mean, some of this deep doctrine, don't give it now. Milk before meat. And the tenets, there, there's a lot of incredible doctrines that are super important to understand. We'll get to them eventually. 
But right now, when you're just out there trying to declare repentance, to give people hope that they can change from their sins, don't worry about the deep doctrine. Don't stuff beef brisket into the baby bottle. Just fourth article of faith is good enough. In fact, they won't even understand real tenets until the Holy Ghost is with them to help them open the eyes of their understanding so they see the real meaning and intention of various scriptures in ways they never thought possible before. There's an order here. Stick to the order. This is to the same would-be missionary, by the way, Martin Harris. Remember back in section 5 when he's like, Martin, this is what I want you to say when you're out sharing the gospel. Don't be trying to prove Book of Mormon and things. Just stick to, I have a testimony. And here, just stick with faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. So you don't have to get into, well, what's the nature of damnation? And, and how does the atonement work? Mm, just Let's just try to come into Christ, shall we? Then in verse 32, Behold, this is a great and the last commandment which I shall give unto you concerning this matter. For this shall suffice for thy daily walk even unto the end of thy life. Again, maybe that's why Joseph says, you've already got a commandment. Just fulfill the one you've got. This is enough for your daily walk. I love to read verse 32 in the light of what we saw back in verse 23. Is it really that simple? Just learn of Jesus and listen to his words and walk in the meekness of his spirit. That's it. Yeah, that's it. It really is that easy. This is the great commandment. It's the last commandment. It's all you really need. Just faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. The Spirit will guide you through the rest of it. And 33, on the other hand, misery thou shalt receive if thou wilt slight these counsels, yea, even the destruction of thyself and property. Again, I'm seeing the end from the beginning. If it's your property you're worried about, this is the only way you'll preserve the part that matters. Holding on to it too much. You see, whatever you own starts to own you. And by not being free with what you've been given, then what you have is going to end up coming back to destroy you. Your property gone, your spirit, you spiritually gone. Don't slight these commandments. Then 34 and 35, which we already read, impart the portion, support your family, try, there's a balance here, pay the debt, release yourself from bondage. Verse 36, another balance to strike, leave thy house and home, except when thou shalt desire to see thy family. Well, that's good news for missionaries, at least the member kind. Full-time missionaries, you, you're, yeah, you left house and home, stay there till, till God wants you back. But this idea of You've, you're called to cry repentance, but don't swing the pendulum so far. You see, the, again, the balance God is trying to strike? Give a part of your possessions, but also support your family. Go out and cry repentance, but also, I know there's a desire to be with those that you love. The Spirit will help you know when to do which. In verse 37, those times that you are out declaring the word, here's how you should do it. Speak freely to all. Yea, preach, exhort, declare the truth, even with a loud voice, with a sound of rejoicing, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord God. Again, these are glad tidings. So let your face know, and let your voice know, and, and share it freely and gladly. We already talked about the woe. Well, let's talk about the Hosanna. We've seen the suffering. Now can we hear the sound of rejoicing? I really do want to get back to the joy of section 18, if we can. So in verse 38, pray always. I already told you to do it. Let me repeat it myself again. Pray always, and I will pour out my Spirit upon you. 
The Malachi measure. You have no idea how big the windows of heaven can be. Great shall be your blessing. Yea, even more than if you should obtain treasures of earth and corruptibleness to the extent thereof. I love kind of the, the gentle jab he gives at the end. Oh, it's just, this is not a sacrifice. This is just an investment in glorious blessings. You give up a portion of your property right now and you will obtain treasures of earth with all the corruptibleness that goes along with it. I love the Lord just, remember, moth and rust doth corrupt the things here below. So please put your, your focus in heaven where your real treasures will be waiting. Again, Martin, from my perspective up here, your farm's a speck of dirt in the middle of nowhere. Give up that dirt, and it will allow a voice from the dust to come forth and change the entire planet. See things from my perspective, and you won't be coveting your tiny property at all. He then concludes this magnificent revelation magnificently. I love verse 39, based on everything we've studied so far. Behold, canst thou read this without rejoicing and lifting up thy heart for gladness? I almost wish he would have ended it there. I mean, he adds verse 40. I mean, there's another option for you, Martin. Or canst thou run about longer as a blind guide? You, you want to just run around with no direction? You want to be a blind guide with no direction, no sight, no vision? I mean, the, you can be my guest. Or, verse 41, back to the reality, you can be humble and meek and conduct thyself wisely before me. Yea, come unto me, thy Savior. Amen. Remember, he introduced himself as Lord and God. Here's the commandments, do my will. But he's also introduced himself as thy Redeemer. I want to buy you back. And thy Savior. I want to save you from yourself, Martin. And I want to save the world from themselves as well. So cry repentance and allow the book that does a better job of crying repentance than any other thing anyone could read. Help that come forth to this rapidly ripening world as well. Back to verse 39. Man, how can you read section 19 and not rejoice? How can you read it and not want to lift up your heart for gladness? I mean, think about everything we've studied in this section. What condemnation really consists of and how much more merciful it really is than we could possibly imagine. Think about what Jesus endured for our sake and how he is willing to turn his own ashes into our beauty to find joy as a result of his own suffering. In fact, it, whenever I read Alma 36, and Alma talks about his own conversion, yes, I love to hear it in Alma's voice, but with God's power and God's Spirit, I can hear it in the Lord's voice too. And the way he says it is, is incredible. Listen to this as if the Lord were saying it instead of Alma. Alma 36, 19-21. And now behold, when I thought this, now Alma was thinking of Jesus, but picture Jesus thinking of us and our willingness to accept his sacrifice and repent. When I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. All those pains that were so sore and so exquisite and so hard to bear that none of us could ever know. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. Or in this case, our sins. 
and oh, what joy! And what marvelous light I did behold! Yea, my soul was filled with joy, as exceeding as was my pain. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that there could be nothing so exquisite and so bitter as were my pains. Yea, and again I say unto you, my sons and daughters, that on the other hand, there can be nothing so exquisite and sweet as was my joy. Now do you sense the flip side of what we suffered through in verse 15? How sore, how exquisite, how hard to bear, you have no idea. But ashes to beauty, my joy, my rejoicing, my gladness, you have no idea about that either. How great is my joy in the soul who repenteth, for how great is the worth of that soul in my eyes. I pray that we can see things from his divine perspective, whether that's looking out the window at all those sinners that surround us or looking at in the mirror and see the sin within ourselves. I testify that Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to repent, to change, to come unto him. So look up to the mountain, to the high place, and come unto Jesus. He will receive you with open arms.